that money? You don't know where it came from. When you think of them, the money and the key, does it make you remember anything? There's something. Something there. I... Police report we could call. No. We could call anonymously from a payphone just to see if there was an accident. Come on, it'll be just like in the movies. We'll pretend to be someone else. I want to walk around anyway. I'm in Hollywood and I haven't even seen any of it. Come on, Rita, do you feel up to it? Life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would reason you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 273, Mulholland Drive. And this is listener request number 29, courtesy of Theodore. Thank you, Theodore, for finally getting us there. One that's been on the list many a time. Yeah, he's been waiting a long time. 
for us to do this. It's an undertaking, and it's a daunting <laughs> task, really. Yeah. It's definitely one we were going to do at some point, but it's a lot. David Lynch's version of a love letter to Hollywood. A death letter to Hollywood. This is probably going to be pretty long, so I apologize in advance. There are a lot of notes. I wrote out a lot of my own thoughts and feelings. Yeah. For people who aren't that familiar with this movie or don't care about this movie, this episode might be unbearable. (laughs) (laughs) Although it does seem like this movie is mostly beloved, which is weird. Yeah, that's true, but I still think it's... Among cinephiles, it's a big deal, but I think to most of the world, it's probably still pretty culty. For sure. I can remember the first time I watched this. It has to be the first David Lynch movie I ever saw. I probably watched it on whatever, HBO On Demand in like 04 or something. And I did like it, but no idea. <laughs> like, what a twist. Yeah, I watched it much later than that. I I was much more familiar with other David Lynch stuff before I ever saw this. Okay, yeah, I, I really wasn't familiar with him as a director. He's since gone on to be one of my favorite directors, but... When you experience something like this for the first time, not really knowing the vibe or the background on this dude, it's just a unique experience. So before we jump into Mulholland Drive, let's remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at GreatestPod and make sure you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. Let us know on Twitter if you'd like a free sticker, and we'll send that to you. And you can follow us on Letterboxd. Zach, Z-A-C-H, 1983, and Matt Crosby on there. This will wrap up Listener Request Summer. However, we are going to do more Listener Requests, as we've announced several times throughout the rest of the year. If you have never given us a listener request before, you can still send one to us. Otherwise, just hold off if you've already done one. There might be more information on that at some point. Who knows? But right now, we're just accepting first time only, and we'll figure out how to squeeze you in. But we have some lined up for the rest of the year. However, after this, we're taking a little break. We're going to do two episodes in July before we get back on schedule in August. So July is going to be a little bit of a light month. So there will be no new episode next week. Summer break. Heads up. Yeah. (laughs) So let's get into it. There's so much to talk about with Mulholland Drive. It's potentially one of the greatest films ever made, but fuck you if you want to try to explain it and describe it debatably one of the greatest movies of all time like i feel like the people that love it love it but like you said i I still think it's tough to palette for maybe the most mainstream of audiences oh yeah for sure but we're not concerned with them sure (laughs) yeah i mean i absolutely love it and you and i talked about it before the show it's probably lynch's masterpiece of all his movies everything seems to click and fall into place with all of his weirdness it just works Mulholland Drive was released in 2001. It was written and directed by David Lynch, who wrote the tagline for the film, A Love Story in the City of Dreams. So make of that what you will. Mm. 
It's a baffling, surrealist, neo-noir mystery, as you said, Lynch's masterpiece. Something that definitely should not work, but does, because Mulholland Drive was originally conceived as a television pilot, at one point even being considered as a follow-up spinoff to Twin Peaks centered around the character of Audrey Horn. That's right. Played by Sherilyn Fenn on the show. I forgot that. her coming to Hollywood. Yeah. Initial- I, I do want to see that version. Well, I think that you could make the case that Twin Peaks Season 3 gave us a little hint of that. Yeah, yeah. Although the whole thing with Audrey in Twin Peaks Season 3 is a mystery sure. unto itself. Right. With an initial budget of $8 million, a large portion of what is now the finished film was shot in 1999, with Lynch leaving the story open-ended for a potential series. Not surprisingly, ABC rejected it outright. <laughs> no Lynch, thanks. Faced with a brick wall, drew inspiration from the challenges, secured $7 million more a year later, and constructed an ending turning Mulholland Drive into a full feature film. So the total budget ended up being $15 million, the box office $20.1 million, Lynch won Best Director at the 2001 Cannes Film Festival, an award he shared with Joel Cohen for The Man Who Wasn't There. Ah. Mulholland Drive received one Oscar nomination for Best Director. I will say that Naomi Watts was robbed. Oh, yeah. She should have not only been nominated, but won, which is something that I feel recurs throughout Lynch's career, because I think that Cheryl Lee should have won for Fire Walk With Me. Ray Wise should have won for Fire Walk With Me. And there probably should have been some acting nominations, at least in Blue Velvet. Yeah. Lynch's films don't really appeal to the typical Academy voter, that's for sure. But it should appeal to actors, because he really leaves the floor open for a lot of range. Yeah. Although Mulholland Drive is not the only time a Lynch film was nominated for one Oscar and it was Best Director <laughs> because Blue Velvet, the same thing wow. happened. Yeah. You get it, though. You get how we end up there. For those of you tuning in hoping to hear a definitive explanation, I think... Shut it off now. <laughs> you're kidding yourself. <laughs> I think this is going to mostly be just vibes. We're going to give our takes on things. I purposefully stayed away from the majority of explanations out there. I did rely on a few things for help, and I wanted to sample some stuff, but ultimately, you just end up confusing yourself by trying to combine all of these different thoughts that are so different, and everyone's got their take on it, and everyone comes with this pretend authority as if what they think is correct. It's got the inception quality where if you try hard enough, you can find something to counter any theory. Yeah, I just thought it would be better to stick to how we feel about it and what we take from it, which I think is sort of what Lynch prefers. I don't think that he would necessarily take anybody's explanation and say, yeah, this is right. You got it exactly right. But he does love that people analyze his films. He said as much plenty of times but it's part of the fun he never answers (laughs) right what these films are about himself but that's what helps the story live on too the fact that it continues to be a discussion 
Some questions don't have answers and some answers don't have questions. And you can sort of apply that line of thinking to the storylines in the film and some of the scenes, etc. One of the unique things about Mulholland Drive is the way that Lynch cast the film, the two leads, Naomi Watts and Laura Haring, by just using headshots. Wow. Maybe you may love me too. Did you want to tell me something, Adam? This is the girl. Excellent choice. Lynch is a very visual director and has something very specific in mind the photo resume yeah and so he flips through headshots until yeah. he finds people that match what he has in his head wasn't that kind of the cheryl lee story too probably yeah, yeah. laura haring was miss usa 1985 and as far as naomi watts goes there are a lot of similarities between her story and the story of betty oh, slash diane wow she was trying to make it in Hollywood, was on the verge of giving up, had fantasies of driving off of a cliff, Oh, was really not getting anywhere after five years. I actually think that after she filmed this, it was her friend, Nicole Kidman, who convinced her to just wait. Just wait till this movie comes out. Yeah, yeah. It turned out to be her big break. Absolutely, and she's had a hell of a career. And it's a unbelievable career-defining dynamic performance from Naomi Watts, especially the more times you watch the film and you start to inch closer to some kind of understanding right. and then you realize all of the nuance that's yeah. going into what she's doing every time. And just the wild spins in tones that she has to sort of corral. We're going to keep this slightly shorter up front so that we have more time for bullshit at the end and throughout <laughs> for various theories and discussions and ideas and besides the plot itself is super long anyway sure and there's a lot yeah. of different things to touch on but there's a little bit more to get to before the plot so let's talk briefly about david lynch's 10 clues to unlocking this thriller What are you doing? We don't stop here. A surprise. Were these part of the original DVD release or like a subsequent release? Evidently, this was something that was 
supposed to just be released in Europe. Okay. And he didn't think that it would make its way to the United States. Gotcha. But it did. This film was very popular in certain parts of Europe, like France and uh-huh. things like that. And for whatever reason, he agreed to add these clues to the DVD booklet, which is something that he usually wouldn't do. Right. So a lot of people do think that he's fucking with us with yeah, these clues. It did seem off-brand. And at first glance, especially if you've only seen the movie once and you're completely clueless as to what the fuck you just watched, you would look at these clues and think these are insane. Yeah, although one right at the top is super obvious, saying that there's two clues before whatever the opening credits hit or anything. Yeah, but is it? I don't. I, is it obvious? Well, to me, like the whole thing with the pillow. Yeah, but I don't know. There's no answer, though, well, so we yeah. don't know if it's obvious. Okay. <laughs> How would we know? We don't know. Don't he doesn't, know. He doesn't yeah. explain it. So we're just going to read them and we're not going to talk about them yet because okay. we're going to circle back to the clues at the end and give our thoughts once we've already gone through the movie itself. But this is something for our listeners to keep in mind if they're checking out Mulholland Drive for the first time or just listening to this raw-dogging it, Oh, which I think is probably a mistake. <laughs> well, it's our style, though. You can rent Mulholland Drive on streaming for like three bucks. It's completely worth it. I would check it out. Yeah. It's not streaming anywhere for free at the moment, but come on, people. (laughs) Zach and I have both bought multiple copies of it. (laughs) Yeah. And if they come out with something better than 4K, I'll probably buy that too. First clue. Pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. Now... I agree that one of them seems obvious, but I don't know. There what are the, actually a lot of things before the credits. There are, yeah. I take the pillow as being one of them, but I don't know for sure what the other one is. I think it's possible that the pillow is one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, we're not getting into it. Just move on. <laughs> Notice appearances of the red lampshade. That's clue two. Clue three. Can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? An accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. Who gives a key and why? Notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. Hmm. What is felt, realized, and gathered at the club silencio? Notice the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. Finally, where is Aunt Ruth? By the way, how bad do you want to go to Winkies? It's just a Denny's. I know. (laughs) I will say that some of those clues seem more straightforward than others. For sure. Some of them feel more... Some seem very on the nose, and some I'm like, I don't even know what that's supposed to be. Yeah. More designed for discussion than anything else. But again, since it's Lynch, you never really know exactly what he's getting at. Right. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to do a more or less straightforward run through the plot as if we're just taking things at face value no analysis or limited analysis yeah i think stuff will creep in and we'll have our usual comments and stuff but i don't want to get too bogged down as we go because there's just so much to get to that i think it's better to just summarize our theories at the end rather than launch into them every five seconds yeah like if i make a comment on something instead of you being like well that could be because you would hold off. I'll just delete it when yeah. I'm editing. 
As per David Lynch's request, there are no chapters on any of the home video releases for DVD, Blu-ray, and 4K Ultra HD. Which does make it a pain in the ass. He wants it to be experienced all in one sitting. He doesn't want to break it up. Which is a cool artistic idea, but it makes doing notes for this podcast <laughs> yeah, inconvenient. more difficult. Right. What are you doing? What? <clears throat> Vincent stopped making picks. Well, how am I going to know what movies to see? We have a wide variety of Gene picks. Gene's trash. I'm Gene. We're going to switch it up a little bit and do a quick recommendation segment right now. I'm just going to run through four movies that I consider to be yeah. companion pieces. That I'm taking it these are going to be pretty big movies. At least the ones I'm thinking of. Well, the t- two of them are the movies he cites as okay, inspirations. Yeah. And then two that are I think are kind of similar. But yeah, these just enhance the viewing experience. I don't right. really think they explain it. They're not exactly like it, obviously. And I think there's things that you can take from each of them. So the first is Persona. Yep. 1967, the Igmar Bergman film, which you can watch on HBO Max right now. There are definitely similarities between the two women and their relationship in that film, and then Betty and Rita in this film. And then sort of in that same vein, the 1977 Robert Altman film, Three Women. Oh, okay. Which is available on Freevee. I'm not really sure what that is. I think it's a, you can watch it on Amazon. Yeah, also a Criterion. Well, not on yeah, but it's not on Criterion Channel though. Oh yeah. I'm just trying to give them streaming options. Uh, well, buy the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, I love the movie. It's like a five-star movie for me. I think yeah. it's a little too obscure for us to guarantee that we would ever do on this podcast. Yeah, it is cool. I had had it for a while, and then you told me to watch it, <laughs> so I finally did. It's another thing with who's who and right, right. characteristics changing and has like Shelley Duvall, Sissy Spacek. Yeah. I didn't think of that one though. And then the two movies that Lynch right. said inspired him, Sunset Boulevard, which we've done on this podcast before from 1950, which you can watch for free on Pluto TV, which has ads and stuff, but whatever. A classic film. Oh yeah. The Billy Wilder film. And then 1939, The Wizard of Oz, directed by Victor Fleming, also available on HBO Max. I'm sure most people have seen it. Oh, okay. I thought Vertigo was going to be one of them. Yeah, Vertigo makes sense, too. Yeah, okay. But he lists, I think Lynch listed Sunset Boulevard and The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, which seems like there potentially is inspiration for everything. Yeah, he loves that classic Hollywood stuff. Some of the quotes of him about Sunset Boulevard are hilarious. <laughs> so let's get into it. Of course, we did Vertigo on the show, too, so you can yep. check that one out as well. The opening scene of Mulholland Drive is a lot of young people dancing against a purplish-blue background. It's really cool and feels nothing like anything else that happens in the movie. I did notice that the clothing was a little old-timey. Yeah, yeah, me, right. Which... Not to just immediately launch into theories, but <laughs> it lends credence to some of those weirder theories that yeah, you can yeah. see out there. It does seem out of time. It seems out of time. I think it does make you feel like it gives you a small town vibe, even though there's no indication of that. Yeah, you don't know what's later. going on right. exactly. 
later we'll confirm that this is a jitterbug contest. I wouldn't be able to tell you what jitterbug even really nope. was. I know it's like a dance. Zero knowledge. Naomi Watts and this elderly couple are quickly and briefly transposed over top. It's unclear if they're watching the dancers, which seems unlikely. Embracing and smiling. Then Watts alone, lit very brightly. She seems to be basking in unseen adulation. We really won't get a definitive answer on what's happening until much, much later in the film. But even with the dancers coming up, and maybe you said this, but there's the dancers, but then there's also like silhouettes of the dancers behind them. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows? Yeah, right. Which part of this is a clue? Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) The next thing we hear, and this movie definitely uses a lot of sound, just as much as imagery and symbolism. There's a lot of interesting sound choices. We hear a heavy inhale, which many people have speculated is some sort of drug intake. Yeah. Darkness and then sinking into a pillow, which of course would lead one to think that what you're about to see could potentially be a dream. Yeah, like a drug induced dream potentially. Yeah. Then we see the Mulholland Drive street sign, headlights flickering on it, the incredible score from longtime Lynch collaborator Angelo Badalamenti. Oh, yeah. Moody. It might be his best piece of music, this opening song. It is good. It's definitely brooding and menacing, and you feel sort of uneasy watching this limo driving up along Mulholland Shots of nighttime Los Angeles were going upward into the Hollywood Hills. The passenger in the limousine is a beautiful, dark-haired woman, played by Laura Haring. There are two men up front. Much to the woman's surprise, the car stops suddenly, and she is forced out at gunpoint. While at the same time... Just some wild kids out having a time. Two cars filled with what seem to be rowdy teenagers or drag racing it's like i know what you did last summer (laughs) down mulholland coming from the opposite direction using both sides of the road before these men are able to do what they're planning on doing which seems to be to kill this dark-haired woman there's a massive head-on collision the dark-haired woman is the sole survivor of the car accident injured dazed and likely in shock she wanders away from the scene down into Los Angeles. I love that one shot, which I think has become iconic, of Haring just running down that dark nighttime street with those giant palm trees. Oh, I know. And the cars parked. Not even five minutes into the movie, and she crosses Sunset Boulevard, and we get the (laughs) shot of the sign there. For the moment, the mysterious woman passes out behind some bushes. Back at the accident, police and fire trucks are at the scene oh yeah robert forrester making an appearance detective mcknight forrester and detective domgard played by brent briscoe make their only appearance despite both actors being listed in the opening i I know (laughs) it does seem like forrester's gonna pop back up but just no i do wonder that if this had been picked up he As was, a pilot, yeah. if he would have popped up in it, because I know that he wanted Forster for the original Twin Peaks and then eventually right. put him in Twin Peaks season three. Yep. But it is odd. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that he felt like he had to keep the scene, obviously. In the early morning hours, the dark-haired woman is awakened by the sound of an older woman departing a nearby apartment complex. This is a pretty slick move. 
being able to quickly put this together that you could sneak in while this person's leaving. She's able to sneak into the older woman's empty apartment undetected where she passes out once again. Well, who would have thought that two of our four listener requests for this month would deal with amnesia so much? (laughs) I don't know. It's such a convenient movie trope. (laughs) Really? It is one of those things that happens in movies seemingly way more than in real life. The next part of the film functions almost as like its own little standalone short feature. And it's not until you watch the film a bunch of times and you start diving into all of these theories right. and trying to come up with all this stuff where you can even connect it to anything because it's so weird and out of place. The acting almost seems intentionally cheesy during this sequence. I don't know if I would say cheesy, well, but like slower even than the other actors. Yeah, yeah. Which is something that Lynch obviously directs his actors to do a lot in a lot of his work. For sure. Have those long pauses. Right. Where they just look at each other and then they say something finally. (laughs) But it's become the most iconic part of this movie. Yeah. This scene is a scene that everybody talks about and it became one of those what is the scariest scene in a non-horror movie? Even though you could argue that Mulholland Drive is kind of like a horror movie. Right. But this gets put on those kind of lists all the time because yeah. people freak the fuck out at this scene because yeah, it's yeah. terrifying. It's like one of those memorable jump scares. I'm sorry. That... Yeah. At first, I thought what was next was her being picked up at the airport. Oh, no, no. That's yeah, why that... I said the cheesy thing. They... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, That's like overly right. wholesome. Okay. Yeah. This scene, though, is incredible. And even the first time I saw it when I didn't really get it, <laughs> get what I was watching, this scene jumped out to me and really stuck with me beyond the viewing eventually you learn that elements of this scene do tie in and there is a significance obviously with this particular location but these two central characters are hard to connect to other things right we have dan played by patrick fischler and herb played by michael cook who meet at winkies which is essentially a stand-in for denny's there's this famous denny's on sunset that's right next to some movie studio. And oh, it's yeah, kind of yeah. got this reputation. Right. And essentially they're there to discuss a troubling dream that Dan has had that took place in that exact location. Yeah, it's really shaken him to his core. <laughs> yeah, you have to say Herb is kind of a good friend. Yeah. He's willing to meet this guy, <laughs> pick up the tab. This is just to talk about a dream. <laughs> it's sort of like when you and me go to Eaton Park. Which hasn't happened in a long time. Because things like this happen. You start describing your dreams. (laughs) Yeah, I've definitely had some bad dreams about Eden Park. (laughs) I just wanted to come here. To Winkies? This Winkies. Okay. Why this Winkies? It's kind of embarrassing. Go ahead. I had a dream about this place. Oh, boy. You see what I mean? (laughs) Okay. So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Well, it's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. 
it's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this, <laughs> except for the light. And I'm scared like I can't tell you. Of all people, you're standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are and... Then I realize what it is. There's a man in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. I hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. if he's out there. To get rid of this god-awful feeling. Right then. Eventually it builds up to the reveal of this man behind Winkies. As Dan says, he's the one who's doing it. Now, is he talking about what we actually see at the end of this scene? That's unclear and up for debate for sure because yeah. we learn about a lot of potential he's the one who's doing right. it kind of guys <laughs> yeah. but it almost seems to be like confirmation of well this can't be real so let's check it out and then you you learn that reality is just as bad or worse than the nightmare sure and it shocks dan to the point where he collapses you're not even sure is he dead right did he have a heart attack it almost seems overly cruel because even though it is sort of a scary moment, it is a human being who yeah. clearly has fallen on hard times <laughs> and it's just become now the object of our terror. Yeah. The whole sequence is one of Lynch's iconic tense, building tension, making something feel, something mundane seem scary just through the music and the pacing. He was just so good at that. And when you're familiar with Lynch's work, for example, Twin Peaks or Blue Velvet or something like that, you understand that one of the things that Lynch is attracted to is peeling back the veneer and That's revealing right. the horror underneath. And what better place than bright, sunny, glossy Hollywood and then the horror show behind the, the scenes just in the middle of the day by a dumpster. And yes, you have him describe the situation and then the building where you have him say, like, you were standing right there. And then all of a sudden, Herb is standing there paying the check. And then they go outside and yep. clearly Dan is recognizing things. And it's it's almost starting to like breathe heavy and sweat, it seems like. And then it pays off with this reveal of this yeah. person who is credited as... The character's called Bum, which is sort of unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. I don't think people would approve of that now. It's My, actually a woman. 
Oh yeah, Bonnie Aarons, who plays the nun in The Nun. Wow, and is like the Nosferatu esque vampire in the recent Barbara Crampton film Jacob's Wife. Okay, she has a very distinct look. Yeah, I think that Lynch probably just saw her and was like immediately transfixed. Reading her interview about what Lynch wanted her to do is very funny. She was trying to make certain faces, and he'd be like, no, you know, not like that. <laughs> and then she's like, you know, and David is so hot. He's so dreamy. So I just stared at him because he's so hot, and he would be like, yes, that's it. <laughs> and that's the face she's making underneath all of that. Wow. It's like her, I'm in love with David Lynch face. <laughs> After the first time I watched this, I can remember thinking back, thinking that it was more of like a beastly looking creature i don't know that was sort of my memory like almost like monster like yeah it's all your imagination starts to play into what you're actually seeing right is a human covered in dirt yeah yeah and almost unrecognizable you can't really tell if it's a man or a woman or what's going on just a lot of sludge in their hair and right face yes and, everything. and they're kind of jumping out for a second and it's enough to cause dan to collapse and then yeah. we move on and dan does appear later in the film but again you're not really sure what his connection is unless you latch on to one of these theories and tie him back into it i guess the initial takeaway is is there anything there because it doesn't seem like the other guy reacts or sees anything i was just thinking yeah herb definitely undersells it yeah <laughs> <laughs> our mysterious dark-haired woman is still asleep in the apartment, and then we have our first appearance of the bizarre cryptic men connected via telephone calls. These end up seeming like the secret decision makers, the unknown higher powers behind the scenes in Hollywood. They are headlined by Mr. Roke, played by Michael J. Anderson. A people- former Lynch regular. Yeah, people would know him as the man from another place from Twin Peaks. He's a a dwarf actor. To give Mr. Roke an odd and uncanny appearance, actor Michael J. Anderson, who is a dwarf, was fitted with oversized arms and legs made out of foam prosthetics. This was to make Mr. Roke appear to have unnaturally long limbs while having an abnormally small head. The wooden wheelchair Mr. Roke reclines in was made to be purposefully huge to add to the character's strange appearance. I'm not sure how effective this all is. It looks just odd to me, but not in a way that is unsettling or anything. I don't know. It just... I kind of get what you mean. I wonder if you're supposed to play into the meta quality of knowing that he's a little person. Right. Seeing that. I had no background on this guy like the first time I saw this movie, but you can kind of tell something's not right here. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? It's a quick series of phone calls. There's one guy who I think is just credited as like back of head man or something (laughs) you never see his face they seem to be talking about the dark-haired woman being missing and something happening she's still missing yes the job's not done i don't know do they say that though no not directly but that's like the gist that i get out of it are they concerned that she's missing or are they in on what's happening to her or supposed to happen to her i don't know They've decided that someone else is the girl, though. It's cryptic. Yes. Later that morning, an aspiring actress named Betty Elms, played by Naomi Watts, arrives in Los Angeles. 
So yes, as you said, there is sort of a a corniness to it. She's very naive, bubbly, excited. I can't believe I'm in Hollywood. Type full of feel. hope. Yeah. Sickeningly sweet and optimistic. Won't that be the day? Yeah. Just very over the top to the point where it's obvious that something's a little off. Right. Again, though, if you are someone not familiar with David Lynch's oeuvre, right. this may be off. You're just taking it at face value and thinking, like, this isn't very good, probably. You're like, what is this? And yeah. then <laughs> people watching it for the first time after listening to this and they heard me say she should win Best Actress. They're like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is sucks. ridiculous. Yeah. yeah, I know that me and you have had that experience with people who tried out Twin Peaks. And right. They can't understand what's going on. In the first episode, they were like, the acting is so bad. And I'm yeah. like, we're watching something different. <laughs> it's Yeah, they're not getting what they're seeing. It's just something completely foreign. Right. And... That's what's so incredible about Watts' performance in Mulholland Drive is that there's so many facets to it because even within the Betty part of it, oh yeah, she starts to change and let different pieces of it in. When she does the performance within the performance, you know, yeah. the audition scene. Right. And everybody's just like blown away. Which she does twice, yeah. two different ways. Right, right, yeah. There's so many things, and then obviously the final quarter of the film where she's playing somebody else, essentially. This is the return of the old couple from the flash at the beginning of the film. Right. We have Irene and her companion, who's not really named. And My first instinct is that it's her grandparents. I'm not sure that that actually makes sense, but instinctually just seeing them, that's what I think. Yeah, I think that you can assign a lot of different symbolism to these characters a lot of people assume that they are in real life the judges from the jitterbug contest yeah saw so much hope and promise in her and then they symbolize the people that she's let down right by turning into this other person that she turns into and she's racked with guilt and everything else I will say that when you first watch this film, the idea of them somehow factoring into the final moments of the film seem insane. Yeah. You would never think that. And even when you do see it the first time, I think you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you might not even remember them right. at that point. But there is that shot of them in the back seat of that limo. Just sort grinning. of grinning. And like laughing almost cartoonishly. Yeah. You do have to sort of wonder what Lynch is going for there, what he's trying to convey in that moment. Right. Is that this idealized happiness that Diane slash Betty is imagining? I don't know. I think that's part of it. The landlord at the apartment. Coco. Coco, played by veteran actress Ann Miller. She is a classic Hollywood actress. Right. Was appearing in things in the 40s and 50s and whatnot. This was her last Golden age. role. She gives Betty keys. <laughs> Suspect. And lets her into her Aunt Ruth's apartment where Betty will be staying in Los Angeles while trying to make it as an actress. Well, everything feels on the up and up when she's showing her around the apartment complex and sort of like taking her through and then takes her to the door. So I'm like, okay, yeah, the aunt has given all of these pre-instructions and everything. But then she says something along the lines of, well, it seems like you and your Aunt Ruth have got something worked out so here you go she kind of ends it in a weird way there's a lot of strangeness with 
the people who live in this apartment complex. Yeah. That it's hard to really pin down exactly what's going on. People pointing out, by the way, the exterior design of this place looking similar to Norma Desmond's mansion with just yeah. like all the vines and branches on the exterior walls. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of parallels and homages to Sunset Boulevard within the film. Aunt Ruth's apartment is the same apartment our mysterious dark-haired woman is hiding out in. Betty is startled to discover the woman in the apartment. She actually comes across her naked in the shower. Yeah. Betty, very sweet, of course, and that's like a big part of it. Couldn't undersell this more the whole time that this is unraveling. Yeah. First that there's a strange person here, and then eventually finding out that there is no backstory as to why this person's here. Yeah, Betty's response to the situation is to instantly be helpful and to assume the best. She's actually so chatty that she borders on being annoying. Right. She's like, okay, relax. Rita's like, I picked the wrong house. (laughs) My name's Rita. Hi. Do you work with my aunt? No, I, I'm sorry, it's, it's none of my business, I, she has pretty red hair. She's letting me stay here while she's working on a movie that's being made in Canada, but I guess you already know that. Well, I couldn't afford a place like this in a million years, unless of course I'm discovered and become a movie star. Of course, I'd rather be known as a great actress than a movie star. But, you know, sometimes people end up being both. So that is, I guess you'd say, sort of why I came here. I'm sorry. I'm just so excited to be here. I mean, I just came here from Deep River, Ontario, and now I'm in this dream place. But you can imagine how I feel. We should call a doctor. No. But this could be serious. No, I... I need to sleep. If you have a concussion, you shouldn't sleep. It'll be okay if I sleep. Just need to lie down here and sleep. It turns out that the woman has amnesia and calls herself Rita after seeing a poster for the film Gilda starring Rita Hayworth. Ooh, a Rita Hayworth poster. So, yes, just like Overboard, a central character has amnesia. <laughs> just like the Shawshank Redemption, yes. Rita Hayworth and Gilda, a big part of it. And a poster, yeah. We might have to actually do Gilda on the show at some point. Probably. Aunt Ruth, they say, is working on a film in Canada, which it also turns out is where Betty is from, right. Deep River, Ontario. That's right. Which is a very Lynchian-style name. Yeah. Deep River. There is sort of a a long-time Hollywood joke about making a film in Canada and what that actually means. Which I guess I should just say now. Yeah. Dead. It means the person's dead. Okay. I don't know what to make of Aunt Ruth. I'll just spoil it right now. 
as far as David Lynch's 10 clues. The Aunt Ruth question, I don't know. Same. That was one that, <laughs> as I was going through the list, I was like, I have no idea what this is supposed to be. And I didn't like anyone else's answers to that either. Yeah. <laughs> Elsewhere, director Adam Kesher, played by Justin Thoreau, who I will say is often hilarious in this film, especially during this For section, sure. yeah. which we'll call the Betty section of the film. Just playing this... He's sort of arrogant, but also a loser. <laughs> it's like hard to buy that he's that great of a director. <laughs> it's hard to really buy who he is. Yeah, I know. He I don't is, know. He's funny in it. For a while, it seems like he takes a very centralized, almost like co-main role. But that definitely is not where we finish. Yeah. I guess that would kind of fall under potential theories. But I do think yeah, that yeah. there's probably a reason that Betty wants to like build him up to be... A certain way right in her head is like not a certain type of guy but exactly sort of a yes i agree with that he's facing a difficult situation of his own he's in the process of recasting the lead actress in his new big project but a business meeting reveals that the film is essentially being commandeered by gangsters who insist he cast an unknown actress named camilla rhodes who we see her headshot and is being portrayed at this point by melissa george but if you look as the lead quickly, I think you could think this is Betty on first viewing. You're just seeing like a headshot of a blonde woman. No, I never you, had that. You no. don't think so? Okay. <laughs> this is the girl. This is the girl. Do you think that Rita is the reason for the recast? Is that what we're supposed to take? Although, would it be happening this quickly? Yeah, I don't know. It's hard to say on that. But. Once you find out the truth about what's going on, I guess the timeline doesn't matter anymore. Right, right. It could all just be True. whatever. Yes. But the timeline, even at any point during Mulholland Drive, is always sort of fluid and up for debate and interpretation. The timeline is never quite totally linear anyway. This scene is completely strange. It's uh, an indication of the unseen, unknown machinations in Hollywood it's not about talent or even a director liking you it's something else entirely we have Dan Hedaya and actually Angelo Badalamenti <laughs> right. playing the two gangsters the Castellone brothers the thing with the espresso seems like yes. straight David Lynch but there might be more to it I thought that that was something that either he ex- experienced something similar or, like, that was based on something that really happened in, like, a studio yeah. exec meeting or something. I could definitely believe it. Obviously, an exaggerated version in the movie, but this was something that stuck with me after the first viewing as well. It was the winky scene, and I was just, like, repulsed by this guy just spitting this <laughs> espresso into this napkin. It does feel like one of the things Lynch is doing throughout the movie, though, is taking some meta shots at the studio process in Hollywood and stuff. Well, just all of it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Every aspect of it. Right, but I mean, I think specifically things that may have impeded him in his career, including people getting in the way, not letting a director do the things that he wants to do. (laughs) Mr. Gliani, brothers, let me introduce you around. Oh, please. Uh, Let's take a seat. This is Mr. Darby, whom you know, and this is the director, Adam Kesher. And his uh, manager, Robert Smith. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah. She's very pretty. Mm. Mm. May I offer you gentlemen anything? Espresso. Nothing. Uh, what's the photo for? One espresso. No, that's it. I think you're going to enjoy your espresso this time. I've done quite a bit of research, knowing how hard you are to please. This one comes highly recommended. What's the photo for? It's a recommendation. A recommendation to you, Adam. It's not a recommendation. This is the girl. What girl? For what? What is this, Ray? Uh, we'd be happy to put her on the list for considerations. Uh, you'd be pleased to know that there's quite a bit of interest in this role. Interest? Hmm. There's six of the top actresses that want this thing. This is the girl. Right, take care of this. Hold on. Hold on, Adam. Hold on? There's no way! There's no way! that all, sir? Sorry. That was a highly recommended. That is considered one of the finest espressos in the Wait world. Minute, what sir. is going on here? There is no way that girl is in my mind. This is the girl. Hey, that girl is not in my film. It's no longer your film. We see that Mr. Roke is listening in on the meeting. David Lynch made it clear to Thoreau that. Kesher is not supposed to be David Lynch, which is often how it does play out. When writer-directors write a character of a director, they tend to be an avatar for themselves, but that's not what Lynch was going for here. Right. In retaliation for what transpired during the meeting where Adam is being told that he has to cast this certain girl, he goes outside and smashes the Castellani brothers' car's windshield... (laughs) 
This is a reference to a famous 1994 incident where Jack Nicholson did the same thing. <laughs> Nicholson evidently has the nickname Mulholland Man. Wow. It's a weird connection. What set him off? Probably something similar. Yeah. It was producers, I think. Sure. As a response to Kesher not wanting to cast Camilla Rhodes, Mr. Roke retaliates by shutting everything down. Meanwhile, an inept hitman attempts to steal a book full of phone numbers and ends up leaving three people dead in the process. Oh, man. That's unheard of. An accident like that? Who could have foreseen that, man? It's unreal, right? Yeah, yeah. Unbelievable, man. What's up, bro? God, you look good. What have you been doing? Yeah, you know, just doing some stuff for this guy. Yeah? Yeah. Are you making ends meet? Hardly. (laughs) I know, man. Look at my digs. Times are tough, bro. Hey, man, it's not that bad. Gee, I hope you're not gonna get in any trouble. Oh, that was just a thing, man. But that story, that made you laugh, right? That was a funny story, man. (laughs) Fucking car accident. (laughs) Hey, so that's, uh, that's it, huh? That's Ed's famous black book. The history of the world and phone numbers. No! 
Lynch trademark, just sort of a weirdly comedic scene in the middle of something horrifying happening. Yeah, it's a darkly comedic moment. The hitman is Joe, played by Mark Pellegrino. They're discussing an accident at the beginning of the scene. Yep. It seems like they're probably referencing Rita's accident. Feels that we way. we don't know for sure. Right. So he tries to stage a suicide. It turns into a giant fail where he <laughs> accidentally shoots a woman through a wall in the butt or something. So then he's got to go kill that woman. And then that leads to him killing the janitor. It's setting off the alarm on his escape. It's a whole comedy of errors. <laughs> it's a clown show. I would say that it definitely took me a long time to understand the significance of this scene because it's such a random placement of it right that you kind of forget about it other than he's just a hitman you kind of forget about what the scene might mean until later and then you realize that there's sort of a right a wish fulfillment element Uh to this scene betty speaks to aunt ruth and learns that ruth does not in fact actually know rita at all which should cause some panic but fails to. Yeah, it ultimately just makes Betty become very protective of her new friend. And this revelation does not actually change all that much from Betty's perspective. You're awake. I think I misunderstood. I thought you knew my aunt and that's why you were here. I just talked to my aunt on the phone and she wants me to call the police. Rita? I'm sorry. I... What is it, Rita? I thought when I woke up, I thought sleep would do it. What's wrong? I don't know who I am. What do you mean? You're Rita. No, I'm not. I don't know what my name is. I don't know who I am. To help Rita remember her true identity, Betty looks in her purse where she finds a large amount of cash and an unusual blue key. So this blue key is more shaped like a triangle, like a long, skinny triangle. Yeah, you would look at it and be like, this is not something that's meant to open anything from Earth. (laughs) Not a normal-shaped key. The inept hitman Joe is asking around about Rita. He's actually talking to a prostitute played by Rena Riffle, who I recognized immediately as being from Showgirls, and I looked at her IMDb, and it seems like that's her thing. (laughs) Because she was the one that made that weird Showgirls sequel. Oh, oh, wow. Based on her character. Yeah. (laughs) Like, that's like awesome. pennies from heaven or something because the character <laughs> name was Penny or something. <laughs> that's great. This is odd. This scene always stands out. It's very short. They're yeah. in the parking lot. Are they next to Winkies? Or they are, are, yes. They were back in the Winkies parking lot. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of significance at this Winkies. Yeah. She's a street walking prostitute, it seems like. And right. he's asking her if there's any new girls around. And he's referencing being beat up. And it, it seems clear that he's talking about Rita. Now, I don't know if it's because of this scene, but it does feel like that Mulholland Drive scene when she's riding up in the limo. It does have a feel like a high-end prostitute setup that she's on her way to. Now, maybe it's in my head because of this scene and what's implied from it. But even if 
there was something there. I'm not picturing them on the same tier of prostitution. <laughs> yeah, this woman in the parking lot who's being loaded up into the back of a van. She's got bruises on her arms. She's a very pretty woman, but she seems it's a rough scene down out on there. Her luck. Yeah, she's not wearing a an expensive dress in the back scene of a limousine. No, but there's no indication, I guess, other than theorizing that that's what Rita is up to. We don't really know. No. We find out later what the other version of her is, and there seems to be some equivocation between those two Sure, things. sure, yeah. I guess if you want to go down the Hollywood casting couch, sleeping your way to the top theories, right. then yes, there is some sort of a through line with prostitution, but yeah, I don't know. This scene is weird, because... It's one of the harder ones to explain. The idea that this Rena Riffle character would know... Rita or know what happened to her seems strange, but then again, he doesn't actually use any names, and so we're just assuming that's what he's talking about. True, because we're trying to make a connection to it. It's hard to explain otherwise. Which maybe is a fool's errand yeah. when it comes to a movie like this to try to make connections to everything. But I guess the scene does reveal that in addition to being a hitman, he is also some kind of a pimp. Sure, possibly a Renaissance man. Another iconic shot alert when we transition from the rows of palm trees to betty reclining staring off hands behind her head yes come on it'll be just like in the movies right pretend to be someone else (laughs) (laughs) i do love how much they hit you over the head with some of the dialogue like it's so great because it it is subtle too but when you kind of know where we're heading it's like so many lines about what a dream this place is (laughs) (laughs) this is a dream place yeah yeah i think that it's interesting to note how betty first acts arriving in los angeles in that scene with irene i don't know if that's the airport or a bus station i can't really tell what that's supposed to be oh i thought it was the airport but if she's coming from ontario yeah that makes sense but it doesn't really look like anything right true generic building with an escalator yeah if you compare how she acts in that moment to how she slowly acts, it's not that she turns bad or evil or anything like that, but she has this weird sort of fearlessness as she embarks on this Nancy Drew mystery with her yeah. amnesiac friend well, who she, she just found in an apartment. It starts to feel a little blue velvety. <laughs> She's getting sucked into it. Yeah. Adam returns home to find his wife, Lorraine, cheating on him with the pool guy, played by Billy Ray Cyrus, of all people. Wild. Miley's dad. Yeah, and before Miley was famous or anything. Yeah, and a good seven years or so after Achy Breaky Heart, yeah. it seems like. I know, it's insane. Also, much bigger than I would have expected him to be. <laughs> Adam walks in on them in bed, and his response is to grab Lorraine's jewelry <laughs> And dump pink paint on it. <laughs> Which is hilarious. He ends up getting beat up and tossed out of his own home. Yeah. A sad showing. Part of Adam's character is that he wears all black. Black suit, jacket, black mm-hmm. shirt, black pants, black belt, black shoes, With black sunglasses. And now he's paint stained on it. Yeah, now <laughs> he's got pink ornamented paint on it. It's sort of a weird look. Not even an attempt to bring some clothes with him or buy more. Because he does maintain this outfit when he's at Cookies. He remains oddly silent through a lot of this, which is odd. Yeah, he's processing it in his way. 
So let's talk a little bit about dreams within dreams and trying to decipher all of the different things within Mulholland Drive. I think it's possible that the key to understanding Mulholland Drive may lie more with deciphering whose subconscious we are entering at any given moment. The film itself begins with a potential dreamer descending into a pillow, possibly after partaking in some substances. Then you have the Winkies vignette, which occurs between moments of Rita passing out. So despite all of the popular readings Uh, of the film, you could read that part of this takes place within Rita's mind within another person's dream and then we're talking about yet a third character's fucking dream. They've got those devices from Inception. But you could also jumping ahead a little bit, but you could also theoretically think that Betty and Rita are the same person anyway. Yeah. So it's all the same. (laughs) What a maze. Is that her dream? Is it a dream within a dream? And of course, Dan is talking about his own dream. The whole trip to Winky seems to originate as a method to prove his own dream wasn't real, but it backfires when the nightmare comes to life right in front of his face. There are theories that Mulholland Drive is all Aunt Ruth's dream about her own failed career. It would certainly explain some of the phrases Betty uses and her 50s style of conservative dress. Supposedly, as I said, working on a film in Canada is a joke. Sure. For being dead in the film industry. So is Aunt Ruth dead or about to die and her life is flashing before her eyes as a twisted nightmare of what could have been juxtaposed against what really was? I can somewhat buy the theory, but it's just not what I want it to be. Yeah. I don't necessarily want it to be that, but I don't really think it would matter. Sure. Because again, it's just names at a True. That's right. And never forget that Lynch is sometimes having fun. There's plenty of dark humor in Mulholland Drive, and I wouldn't put it past him to be fucking with the viewer intentionally some of the time. Or at the very least, he's relying on feeling and instinct for editing and constructing rather than any existing concrete logic. I don't want to imply that he's being insincere in what he's presenting. He's never wasting our time or his It's more of what would feel like a comedic red herring rather than anything deliberately pointless. Yeah, or putting something there that's like, well, people could interpret it this way. Yeah, I think that the way that most filmgoers' brains work, they're always in search of an answer. Right. And they're always more conditioned to more traditional storytelling, linear storytelling, and... Lynch does not approach cinema that way. And if you watch Mulholland Drive and you're like, I don't understand any of this, but I vibe with it, I think that would be more than cool with Lynch. I don't think he's expecting that's you defi- to have an answer. Yeah, that's definitely where I started. <laughs> no idea, but I'm vibing with it. Yeah, I think that's how most people have to start. I think yeah. it's basically impossible to come up with an understanding the first time yeah. you see it. Because it's so hard to even get your bearings at a certain point. And you have to remember faces, and not just the main characters, but other people, and tie things back, and things are clearly out of order. A lot of the things that are developed within the first hour and hour and a half of the movie completely end up being irrelevant to where the movie ends. Not to say that they're irrelevant to the points that Lynch is trying to make, but if you just take the movie at surface value... Betty and Rita hide the purse with the money and the key in a hat box in a closet in Aunt Ruth's apartment. 
They then use a payphone outside of that same Winkies to call the police to confirm if there was an accident on Mulholland Drive the previous night. Betty is sort of having fun with it a little bit. You know what I mean? She does like, oh, I'm going to trick the cops into giving me information. And she seems like she's having a fun time yeah, doing she's so this. proud of yeah. herself. Her ruse. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out there was an accident. Afterwards, they go inside Winkies and are served by a waitress named Diane, which sparks a memory within Rita of the name Diane Selwyn. The waitress, who we will see again, is played by Missy Kreider, who has a similar haircut to Betty. The pair find Diane Selwyn in the phone book and call her. Betty says, it's strange to be calling yourself. There you go. (laughs) Ding. Rita, maybe it's not me. (laughs) (laughs) It's all right there. It really is. There is no answer, but the answering machine voice does not belong to Rita. It's not my voice, but I know her, she says. And if you do pay close attention, the voice does sound familiar. It's not obvious. Yeah. It's not obvious. You definitely could miss it. Right. But it does sound familiar, and you could kind of put it together. Some gangsters are looking for Adam at his house, and they end up beating up his wife and her pool man lover instead when he's not there. Never really goes anywhere other than to suggest that these guys who are pissed at him about the Camilla Road situation, are looking for him. Meanwhile, Adam's actually crashing at the most rundown fleabag motel imaginable named Cookies. I know, what a dump this place is. Well, the easy joke would be to compare it to my apartment right now, which (laughs) isn't that funny. But the truth is, we lived in an apartment (laughs) (laughs) at one point that is exactly like Cookies. Walls falling apart. Just horrific. (laughs) Actually, I think our apartment may have been worse. (laughs) We watched this at the time, and we were like, man, does Cookies have any rooms available? (laughs) It's at Cookies where he learns his line of credit has been cut off in retaliation for not cooperating in the casting of Camilla Rhodes in his movie. The presentation of it is pretty funny, too, with the whole thing where Cookies, like, there's a problem with your credit cards or whatever, and he's like, but I've been paying you in cash. Well, yeah, but some guys came by and told me. (laughs) Some guys from your bank came and told me. My bank? Yeah, Yeah, Adam's reaction is just, what the fuck? (laughs) What is going on? Yeah. Hello? Uh, Someone maybe shut off my money. I know. Where are you, Adam? Sorry, what what, what do you mean you know? Somebody called. When they couldn't get you, they, they told me you were as good as broke. I didn't believe them, so I made a few calls. And? You're broke. Yeah, but I'm not broke. I know, but you're broke. Where are you? I'm at Cookies downtown. Do you know somebody called the Cowboy? The Cowboy? Yeah. The Cowboy. This this guy, the Cowboy, wants to see you. Jason said he thought it'd be a good idea. Oh, Jason thought it'd be a good idea for me to go see the Cowboy. Well, should I wear my 10-gallon hat and my six-shooters? Listen, something tells me that this guy is connected to what's happening. Adam, I think you should do it, and I think you should do it right away. What's going on, Cynthia? It's been a very strange day. Getting stranger. So where, where do I meet this cowboy? I mean, do I have to ride out to the range? Sort of funny boy. If I tell him the meeting's on, you'll have to go to the top of Beechwood Canyon 
and there's a corral up there where he'll be. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. Will you meet with him? Yeah. Sure. No, it's just been that kind of a day. When? Um, I'll call him right away and then I'll call you back. You know, you, you, you could stay at my place if, if, you, if you wanted. Uh, uh, Cynthia, no, I don't think that'd be a good idea. I was just offering a place to stay. Yes, and I appreciate the offer, Cynthia. I'll, I'll find a place. Now look, just go on and give that cowboy a yodel and get on back to me. Okay. But you don't know what you're missing. Adam arranges to meet up with a mysterious man named the cowboy who is eager to see him. Adam is skeptical, but his assistant Cynthia seems to think the cowboy is connected to whatever the fuck is going on. You would be like rolling your eyes. The cowboy. The cowboy wants to meet me at some fucking ranch? Yeah, he has a corral at the top of Beechwood Canyon, which coincidentally is sort of right by the Hollywood sign. Yeah. I think you have to be somewhat familiar with the geography of Los Angeles for some of these things to hit the same way, which I've, I would not have been if it had not been for or, that one YouTube yeah. video. Or have someone explain it to you. Yeah. <laughs> How Mulholland Drive also can lead up to the Hollywood sign and yeah. all these different things. Yeah. There are some fun nuggets there, though. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Betty and Rita make plans to go to Diane Sowen's address the next day there's a knock at the door of the apartment and it's a strange woman who lives in the complex named louise played by lee grant oh yeah was in valley of the dolls all right another classic hollywood actress and she's saying someone's in trouble yes may i help you someone is in trouble who are you? What are you doing in Ruth's apartment? She's letting me stay here. I'm her niece. My name's Betty. No, it's not. That's not what she said. Someone is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Oh, I I'm sorry, but I don't know who you are and- Louise. What are you doing, Louise? <laughs> Oh, Coco, I've been trying to get a hold of you since 3 o'clock this afternoon. That one is in my room, and she won't leave. I want you to get her out. I want you to get her out now. Uh, this is Louise Bonner. I'm sure she meant well. Louise, this is Betty. This is Ruth's niece. In fact, fortunately, I was just on my way over here to see Betty. Betty's a young actress, and I was just delivering some fax pages of a scene for a big audition tomorrow. Well, here they are, honey. Oh, thank you. Come along now, Louise. I'll take you home. Uh, I'm sorry it happens sometimes. No. Come on. No, she said it was someone else who oh, was in trouble. Stop it, Louise. I'm taking you home. Come on. Uh, good night, Betty. Good night. Good night. It's a haunting scene. Yeah, it's creepy. Who are you? What are you doing in Ruth's apartment? She's letting me stay here. I'm her niece. My name's Betty. No, it's not. That's not what she said. Someone in, is in trouble. Something bad is happening. Trying to figure out how Louise fits into this, especially when we learn more about what's going on and the, the truth of the situation, or at least what we think the truth of the situation is, right. is a fun little experiment. Yeah, I don't have much for it. Is Louise 
similar to Dan? Do they exist outside of what's happening and can interact with it in a weird way? Can Louise and possibly Coco see the truth? More likely Louise, but Coco is willing to believe her. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It seems like she's some sort of a seer or a harbinger, at least, of things to come. Right. On the surface, especially the first time you watch it, she's easily dismissed and then forgotten. Oh, yeah. It just seems like a weird interlude, which is something that happens a lot in Lynch films, especially if you don't dig any deeper. But I definitely think that there's more to this scene. It's just hard to understand where exactly it fits in, who she represents, and then later, is there a doppelganger for Louise? I don't know. Yeah. We don't have all the answers, folks, believe it or not. No, far from it. (laughs) Far from it. Mostly because he doesn't know what else to do as everything in his life, both professionally and personally, is crashing down around him. Adam does, in fact, travel to the very top of Beechwood Canyon to meet with this enigmatic cowboy man. Who has no time for Adam's attitude. (laughs) (laughs) Justin Thoreau is hilarious in this role. How nonchalant he is about everything. This guy is talking to him in this cryptic but kind of curt way, and he's just like, Whatever. (laughs) Bemused, annoyed. Yeah. Slightly confused. Doesn't seem scared at all, even though the situation seems kind of scary. And it seemed like it escalated quickly, like this rich guy all of a sudden has just like no money. And it's very dark, and then all of a sudden that light flickers on, which is another Lynch trademark with the loud light bulb flickering on, and then all of a sudden he's standing there. Howdy. Howdy to you. Beautiful evening. Yeah. She want to thank you for coming all the way up here to see me from that nice hotel downtown. No problem. What's on your mind? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Man's attitude. Man's attitude goes some ways, the way his life will be. Is that something you might agree with? Sure. Now, did you answer because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Or did you think about what I said and answer because you truly believe that to be right? I agree with what you said, truly. What'd I say? That a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So since you agree, you must be a person who does not care about the good life. How's that? We'll stop for a little second and think about it. Can you do that for me? Okay, I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think 
and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? Look, where's this going? What do you want me to do? There's sometimes a buggy. How many drivers does a buggy have? One. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy, and if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me. Okay. I want you to go back to work tomorrow. You were recasting the lead actress anyway. Audition many girls for the part. When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay, that's up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. Now you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night. The cowboy is played by a producer friend of David Lynch's, who I think produced Wild at Heart. Just an odd-looking guy, for sure. I think a, in real like, life he does have eyebrows, but they removed them to make him look even stranger in the film, which is effective. He's got like a distinct voice too. Monty Montgomery, quite a name. He actually couldn't remember his lines, and Thoreau had to hold up cue cards at one point wow. to get through it. Holy hell. He's not an actor, really. No, I know, but... I actually think he wrote and co-directed an early, maybe Catherine Bigelow's first film, or oh, an really? early one called Loveless with Willem Dafoe in it. Oh, that's I think fun. it's from like the early 80s. But it ain't exactly a long, complicated monologue here. He is saying weird stuff. Well, that's true. Yeah, some of the lines are weird. The cowboy cryptically urges Adam to cast Camilla for his own good. This is the girl. This is the girl. When he talks to Adam Kesher, the cowboy says, you will see me one more time if you do good. You will see me two more times if you do bad. Justin Thoreau said in an interview that since he didn't have the entire script, but received the pages day by day, he asked David Lynch if the cowboy would appear again in the film. According to him, Lynch's answer was, I don't know, we'll find out together. <laughs> the cowboy does, in fact, turn up two more times, but appearing to Diane, who That's we right. don't really know yet, yeah, and does not interact at all with Adam. But Adam, we'll find out, does do good, I guess. Sure. <laughs> Somebody else might do bad. A lot can be made of the cowboy. The cowboy oh, yeah, right. is one of the more fascinating characters in the film. Yeah, it's definitely, between that and, for lack of a better term, the bum, they're almost the larger presence type things. That Are people, they polar opposites? Or do they work on the same side? Right, yeah. Either way, they seem to be higher powers. They represent bigger things. Than right, just, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, I definitely think that a big part of Mulholland Drive is symbolism. For sure. And that... You can't necessarily just take these things all the time at face value. Right. They definitely are supposed to represent bigger ideas. But there are various theories, ones that would have the bum being higher up on the hierarchy (laughs) than the cowboy, or the cowboy is the top, and the bum is something else entirely. It's all over the place. Right. 
But I think it's safe to say that based off of the wardrobe, which was something that Montgomery brought to the film himself from his personal collection, it's actual clothing worn by Tom Mix, who lived from 1880 to 1940, had 282 credits in film beginning before 1910. He's one of the great silent film stars, the first Western cowboy star, basically. And he's wearing his clothing. Yeah, I did read that. I think because of that, you have to say that he represents old-time Hollywood in some way, shape, or form. Now, how you want to process that information and how you want to use it based on the rest of the story is up to you, but I think that that's the easiest and most sane explanation as to what he might partially represent, at least. Right. This sort of history. Now, if you want to say dark history, you can, but mysterious, secret, but it's there. It's like ever-present in Hollywood, and he's at the top of the chain, this chain that is making the decisions, the decisions that you could say boil down to luck or fate or whatever, but this is the girl. This is the girl. She will be the star. Why? At this point, we don't know, but it's her. Because Camilla the Rhodes. king of Hollywood, this cowboy, said so. What were they thinking when they were handing out Steve Gutenberg's headshot? <laughs> this is the guy. <laughs> People were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The I goot. love the goot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just joking. Parting with the goot. Part of the weirdness of this all, the surreal quality that is, while Louise is outside freaking out about this danger that something's going on inside their apartment, Coco is just like, oh, here's some pages from a script that you're going to audition for. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, what? <laughs> How does Betty show up this fucking bumpkin? All of a sudden, she is an audition? Like, what is going on? (laughs) It's a rosy world. Betty is practicing her audition scene in the kitchen of the apartment with Rita. I actually think Laura Haring is using the actual script, like pages of David Lynch's script to read this back to her. I know. And it's funny, like, the way that they handle the material in this scene juxtaposed with what follows. And that's definitely intentional. It's not that Betty is bad. It's just that she's average she's not taking the material seriously well they're goofing on the material even. yeah the it seems like a melodramatic soap opera yeah. kind of a story where a younger girl is having a secret affair with an older man who is friends with her father something like that you just hear the scene twice right kind of get what's yeah. going on whatever they're kind of trashing it they think it's a joke and she seems pretty normal, although it's all fitting into this overall performance from Watts. It's incredible. Because Absolutely. Even the way she reacts to Rita complimenting her when she just does that British thing where she oh, pretends to right. be smoking yeah. a cigarette. Thank you, darling. <laughs> She's just like unbearably yeah, cute. Right, for sure. <laughs> you just want to hang yourself if you watch this. <laughs> People are like, oh, no. They're getting dark. <laughs> Folks, it's like 90 degrees outside. We have to turn the air conditioner off to do this. It's I'm a like rough scene. Yeah. Like a pig. <laughs> All right. Coco discovers Rita's presence in the apartment. Her reaction to this is very strange. The way that she's speaking is very strange. I don't know what the fuck is going on anymore. You're like, what is going on now? Sure. Why is this woman being in the apartment such a big deal? Yeah, yeah. How does she know that it's not just some friend of Betty's that she asked to come over? Which is the excuse that she uses. 
but clearly Coco thinks something more nefarious is happening. That story makes no sense. There's an issue here. I'm trusting you to deal with it. Now, Luis is sometimes wrong, but sometimes she isn't. (laughs) If there's trouble, get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to Betty's big audition. When Betty goes to her first audition, she's driven to the gates of Paramount Studios. According to director David Lynch, due to Paramount Studios no longer allowing their logo to be shown, only the majority of the gates are seen. Which sucks. I wish that they could have had the full shot. The shot is notably similar to the shot in Sunset Boulevard, where Norma Desmond goes for her big comeback. They actually got the car yeah, from I Sunset Boulevard, and it's in the background That's of really the shot cool. there. Betty's real audition is fucking nuts. I know. First of all, there's a strange unreality to it because of just even a layman's working knowledge of what auditions are like, especially for an unknown. Sure. This would never be like this. It seems a lot more cold. This this room is like pretty warm, minus one notable person. You know a movie that has what seems like a pretty real audition scene? Tell Dick me. Ritchie in True Romance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> with just that one woman in a video camera right. where she's monotone reading the lines back. Yeah. And that's it. You don't meet the director. You don't do an audition with another actor. You don't have all of the producers around. It's, I don't know. They, they've done it in stuff, too. Maybe like La La Land, where she goes to read for something and she doesn't even like get through the line and they're like, okay, we're done. <laughs> that's yeah. what it seems like. This is just a fantasy of an audition. Yeah. It's, it's completely ridiculous. And action. You're still here. I came back. Thought that's what you wanted. Nobody wants you here. Really? My parents are right upstairs. They think you've left. So surprised. I can call them. I can call my dad. But you won't. You're playing a dangerous game here. If you're trying to blackmail me, You know what I want. It's not that difficult. Get out. Get out before I call my dad. He trusts you. You're his best friend. This will be the end. about you? What do your dad think about you? Stop. Stop it. It's what you said from the beginning. If I tell them what happened, they'll arrest you and put you in jail. So get out of here.
Bennett put you in jail. But I was thinking a lot about it and her performance in it where she blows everyone away. And it's clear that... A star is being born. Betty possesses a raw talent beyond the low-level material she's reading. I was thinking a lot about how I'm always impressed with these kind of things, like acting within acting. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about like that scene in Super 8 Sa- with same. I mean, where- it, it almost is like the exact same feel. That came to mind for me, too. Yeah, where you're just like, oh... Well, Everyone it- around them is blown away. Yeah, and it works every time somehow, and you're yeah. like, wow, like real actors and actresses are like really good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because they're acting already, but then they have to, like, as that character, act again as something else yeah. and then blow everyone away. <laughs> it's so weird. Well, it's a little bit of a commentary on, like, great performances being able to take otherwise mundane mediocre material and make it something which is what's happening here because it's a soap opera style plot ultimately it's dismissed even as a movie that will never get made by the random casting agents who happen to be sitting there for some reason no explanation really feeling like they're taking betty to maybe get her big break well yeah i just wanted to talk a little bit more about the okay performance itself so in her little audition She unleashes this raw sexuality. The actor seems sleazy. He's sort of a veteran kind of actor. Yes. Kind of imposing his will on her at the start of it. Right. Like pulling her close and forcing her to do the scene a certain way. Then it quickly becomes her show. And then she grabs his hand and puts it on her ass. She does the scene in a way that you would have never imagined from this material. (laughs) This guy was crying afterwards. And she just completely goes for it. And it's you're transfixed on it. You can't look away. So this big-time casting agent who was sitting in on the audition is impressed enough to take Betty to a soundstage where Adam Kesher's film, The Sylvia North Story, is being cast. Remember that title. When Camilla Rhodes auditions, Adam capitulates to casting her. This is the girl. This is the girl. The casting process for this part amps it up even further into absurdity where they're wearing makeup and costumes and have other actors in the background and they're doing music and a whole set is built and you're like, what audition would this be? (laughs) Because even that first woman who thinks that she's going to get it, who I guess is supposed to be like a real actress or something, is done up in makeup and like, why would she sit there? It does seem like a lot. (laughs) Kesher noticeably continually looking back at Betty as this is all going down. Yeah, Betty locks eyes with Adam, and you feel that he is intrigued by her. It almost seems like there's a recognition. Yeah, it's it's so blatant, where the camera zooms in on Betty as he's looking at her. But she flees the scene before she can meet with him, saying she's late to meet a friend. Her and Rita do have plans, after all. And so it all feels like a big missed opportunity... And later, I guess if you were looking back on this moment, 
you would think that you had this excuse. Oh, I, I, I missed my chance. I had to run out and all of these other things are happening. And then whatever this connection is that Adam is feeling and he's, I guess the implication would be, oh, wait a minute. Is this the girl? <laughs> <laughs> and since this is coming on the heels of the scene where she auditions for the other thing and she blew everyone away, clearly the talent is there, but dot, dot, dot. Because of something else. Because of other factors. It's just not happening. That's right. It's like Lou and Davis. Betty and Rita travel by cab to Diane Selwyn's apartment, which appears as if it's being watched, frightening Rita and adding to the paranoia of it all. A neighbor answers Diane's door and tells them she has switched apartments with Diane. And immediately, something feels off and suspicious about the whole thing. You don't really well, understand for one, why? Pe- people don't really do that very often. <laughs> like, is that allowed? Yeah. <laughs> These are actually the Snow White Apartments, which is a landmark now. Oh, wow. They were built by Disney, who knows how long ago, but oh, shit. designed for employees to live in. Okay. They are not owned by Disney anymore, but right. they're like a landmark. I see. So they go to the other apartment and end up breaking in when no one answers the door. And this is all what i was talking about the gradual change in betty could you have imagined the betty that we saw the aw shucks betty at the airport breaking into an apartment she seems to be changing and evolving i guess in a way to like meet the situation to meet the needs of the situation she's adapting right in a way that you wouldn't expect is it possible that this version of betty was unlocked by that audition experience or was this something coming anyway it's just the rabbit hole yeah, it, it does seem like she's flipping a switch during that audition, but it, it, it seems like it probably would have happened anyway. Right. Especially That's based what on what we learn later yeah, yeah. about what's really going on or what we think is going on. Once inside, both women react to a terrible smell. In the bedroom, they find the body of a woman who has been dead for several days. Disgusting. One thing that you do notice is that Rita seems to have a much more visceral reaction of fear. And it's Betty grabbing her and sort of trying to muffle the reaction a little bit. Yeah, which the Betty we met earlier, it doesn't seem like she would react to this very well. Yeah, it it almost seems like there's cracks in that facade and they're starting to come through. Not necessarily in bad ways where she's like evil or anything but you're just like would that be the way that that person would react like something's off now yeah yeah even the fact that she calmly opens the door with her face covered when she lets rita in she's in control of the situation they avoid the neighbor on their way out and when they burst outside of that apartment there is this odd doubling splitting overlapping of the images of the two women Uh uh-huh which Calls to mind some of the imagery from Persona, some of those films we talked about briefly at the top. What are we looking at here with these two ladies? Right. And things are going to take an even weirder turn in a minute when, terrified, they return to Betty's apartment and Rita disguises herself with a blonde wig. (laughs) Well, initially it's going to cut her hair, right? It's unclear what they're doing. Isn't it Betty who's kind of like, no, no, don't cut your hair. (laughs) Yeah, come on. Yeah. And this blonde wig causes her to look somewhat similar to Betty. And yes, this, again, persona, even single white female. Sure. There's a lot of 
dual yeah. women movies where they the Palma films <laughs> merge together. As Betty says, you look like someone else. And then since this is our podcast and we talk about things the way we want to talk about them. That's true. I think we would be remiss if we didn't make the obligatory Halloween 3 joke as to the sleeping situation that develops <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, really? <laughs> Why don't you sleep in the bed? It, it's better than that couch anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have asked last night. Yeah. It's a weird situation. So you have this house guest who doesn't know who she is and you're letting her sleep on your couch but you feel bad you have this big bed she comes to your bedroom door wearing the wig and just a towel you say you don't have to wear that in the house your house guest immediately looks at the towel (laughs) and then you're like no no the wig yeah and she's like oh i'll take it off when i go to sleep oh and you don't need to sleep on the couch i have this big bed you could sleep here she convinces the house guest to get into the bed. The house guest drops the towel completely nude. A shocking body that right. is just, I mean, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> and then she's climbing into the bed. Yeah, yeah. This is insane. Betty hadn't thought about women sexually before this moment. <laughs> well, that's the interesting thing. Obviously, because of what happens, they have this sex scene this infamous sex scene the sex scene that i knew about before ever seeing this movie sure because i was in high school when this movie came out it had a reputation because of this and because of the relationship between these two women a lot of lgbtq plus writers and theories and Uh all kinds of analysis has gone on and because of the nature of this movie and because of the dialogue even here when betty's like have you ever done this before? And Rita's like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a hilarious answer. Right. Yeah, there's all kinds of question marks about what's going on. And then obviously their relationship gets filled in more later. Absolutely. But it's really a unique relationship on screen. It's in this moment very tender. Of course, it's erotic, but. Sure. I had to say somewhat unexpected. <laughs> I wasn't feeling like a love story was building here. I just missed the details, I guess. I was reminded a little bit of what we talked about with Rod Stewart and his reaction to the nudity of Britt Eklund oh, in right. The Wicker Man, because David Lynch had such a weird reaction to pictures of Laura Haring nude from this movie appearing on the internet that he edited some of the film himself for the home video releases and I think like digitally blurred her crotch or something like that. And it's definitely like very shadowed which i don't think it was theatrically Mm. which i wouldn't know because i didn't see it in the theater and i don't think they've ever released that version because lynch just changed it forever (laughs) criterion wasn't chasing that version down because he was upset about the pictures but it's reminiscent of that just because i mean rod stewart's motivations were nowhere near as pure as lynch being protective but it's almost this weird naivete about where the world is going it's like oh and 1973 people weren't quite used to the idea that their girlfriend might be naked in a movie and then in 2001 people weren't quite used to what the internet was going to be and now you have a gif of every nude scene available on reddit and on twitter and everywhere and all you have to do is search celebrity name nude and then there's a million nude pictures from their (laughs) movies and whatnot and that's just the way it is and you can't really put the genie back in the bottle once it's on screen but it's a weird moment in time that lynch 
was taken aback by that and didn't know that that's what would happen. Yeah, and altered a movie forever because of it. I guess he could change it back. Sure. I don't think that's going to happen. During their love scene, Betty says, I'm in love with you several times, which seems... I understand. (laughs) I get it. Yeah. (laughs) I'm in love with both of them. Absolutely. (laughs) This would have made a hell of an ABC pilot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You do find yourself wondering, huh, what was making the TV cut? I do think that this scene is beautiful and sensual. It's tender. It's real. But there is this very noticeable tinge of melancholy to it. Part of it is the score. The score makes you think this is sad for some reason. And so that maybe is a context clue as to what you're supposed to think about it. And then at 2 a.m., Rita awakes suddenly, repeatedly saying, Silencio. She ends up waking up Betty and insists they go right away to a theater called Club Silencio. It's very unnerving. A terrifying place. No, no, no. Just her in bed. Right. Her eyes are open, but she seems asleep, and she's talking, and then she's talking in Spanish. You could say that the rest of the movie from this part is unnerving. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go with me somewhere. Reluctantly... Betty goes, and they're all of a sudden standing on a street corner trying to hail a cab. And if you look closely at the telephone pole, it says Hollywood is hell. Oh. So there's a clue Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I love the exterior of Club Silencio. Yeah. It's that long parking lot, and then there's that small door with the blue neon sign. Right. Silencio. And then inside, it's like this cavernous, huge theater. I know. That almost doesn't make sense. You're You're like, like, what the fuck? This place seems like our kind of joint. It's an old school theater with one big balcony, but then other balconies on the side. Yeah. It's a whole thing. It's a whole production. (laughs) If you look closely among those in the theater, you can see Laura Palmer and Renette Pulaski, Cheryl Lee and Phoebe Augustine. I didn't know that. Now, Cheryl Lee is not credited. Yeah, yeah. At all. Not even I like uncredited so. no, parentheses. Right. But Phoebe Augustine is, who is Renette Pulaski. Okay. And if you look closely, I would put it at like 99% that it's Cheryl Lee. And other people said it. It's not like oh, I'm yeah, yeah, it right. Up. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But she's not credited even anywhere on IMDb, even if you scroll to the bottom of uncredited's and all that stuff. But yeah, they seem to be among the, the attendees there. Maybe we'll take a look. Yeah. Well, this can't be good then. If they're in attendance. You know things are yeah about to take a turn. Yeah. The MC explains in different languages essentially that everything is an illusion. There is no band, there is no orchestra. No I banda. There is no band. Il n'est pas de orchestra. This is all. Tape recording. No, I banda, and yet we hear a band. If we want to hear a clarinet, listen. Un trombone à colis. Un trabon can sordina. 
Shameless to trombone and sordine. Jerusalem! A muted trumpet. You don't know exactly what he's talking about, but then he does this whole example of like, here's a trumpet. Oh, yeah. There's no trumpet. It's a recording. Rebecca Del Rio comes on stage and begins singing the Roy Orbison song, Crying, in Spanish. Yeah, I never realized it until I was like doing the research that that's what this song was. Yeah. Because there's not really any indication. It's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, she's singing it a little differently than Roy would. Yeah, Totally. Then she collapses unconscious while her vocals continue. Betty and Rita are both overcome with emotion. They're not the only ones. So Rebecca Del Rio, who is the singer at Club Silencio, first met director David Lynch when a talent agent took her on a whim to a recording studio where Lynch happened to be and asked her to sing a song for him. She performed an impromptu version of Lorendo, which I guess means crying, which also on a whim and without her knowledge was being taped by the audio engineer. Years later, Lynch decided to incorporate the song into this film. However, except for a few minor tweaks, this was the exact same recording that wow. ended up being used in the movie. That's cool. At one point, Betty is shaking uncontrollably. Yeah. As if something is happening to her and it's manifesting itself physically. The MC disappears like a magician at one point. (laughs) And then the lady with blue hair in the private balcony, a la Abe Lincoln. A lot of people have theories about her just because she ends up being the last character we see in the movie. That's right. I don't. I'm not entirely sure. (laughs) I don't have one. As the performance winds down, Betty finds a blue box in her purse that will inevitably match Rita's blue key. How'd that get there? The one hidden with the money in the hat box. Yeah. How did it get there? Yeah. How'd she not notice? I do think that it's a manifestation of her understanding something and realizing something because of this performance, and that sort of fits with one of the clues. Yeah. And I guess the key word would be illusion that that guy keeps saying. Yes. It's all an illusion. But I don't know. That's just a theory. That's just guessing that that's what it is, and then... When it starts to dawn, I think there's something to that because this is when, yeah, when everything starts to change. Yeah, when it starts to dawn on her, that's when she all of a sudden has this box. Upon returning to the apartment, Rita retrieves the key and then realizes that Betty has disappeared after placing the blue box on the bed. And it's a very unsettling moment. Oh, yeah. Where you're just like, wait a minute, what happened? Now all of a sudden, Betty's not standing there. And part of that is. Your familiarity. I, know, almost, I don't know if it's the way they do the camera, but it almost seems like there's two Bettys for a minute, right? Well, like, she is wearing the wig. Right, but I mean, when 
Rita goes away. No, Betty is the one that disappears. Oh, I don't know. Betty's the one that disappears, and I think there's a specific reason that it's Betty that disappears. Okay. Because think about it. Yeah, yeah. In this moment, it's going to reveal... It's like... It's symbolic of like learning the truth. And yes. in the truth, we know that Betty is not who Diane really is. Correct. So she can't exist anymore yeah, in yeah. the truth. It's just a weird moment because when you're familiar with Lynch, and there, there's sort of a weird sound cue there. It's almost like an absence of sound. Yeah. Because all of a sudden the camera pans in on Rita retrieving the hat box, and then it pulls back, and Betty's just not there. And you're like, well, wait a minute. She was just standing there. Rita unlocks the box, and then the camera descends into the darkness inside before the blue box falls to the floor. And folks, now this is where it starts to get real interesting. (laughs) It just throws you for a complete loop. You're like (laughs) almost two hours into this movie. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Wait a minute, what the fuck? And even the last sequence seemed like sort of climactic. It felt like we were building towards an end. Yeah, it is very dramatic, and I think... It's hard to remember exactly how I felt after the first time I saw the film, but I think that if you would have asked me like a week after the first time I saw Mulholland Drive like to describe the ending, I think I would have jumped into the Club Silencio. Right, because it, it feels, feels like, like it. something yeah. is ending there. And it kind of is, yeah, but not the whole movie. <laughs> right. The camera then pans up from the floor slowly. Both Betty and Rita are now gone. All of a sudden, Aunt Ruth, of all people, enters the room, looks around and sees nothing, then leaves again. (laughs) Now, I will say, I will admit, that there were times when I watched this movie that it felt like we were back to when she's first leaving the apartment to go to Canada. But that's not really what this is. She's just walking in because she thought she heard something. Yeah. But a lot of people feel like this could be Aunt Ruth's ghost. Okay. But it seems to exist in some sort of an in-between. Yeah. I feel you can just take it that whatever we saw happen in this apartment did not happen. Ever. Right. Do you think this woman is not really Aunt Ruth? I think that's possible. And it's unrelated to the next 40 minutes of the movie? Aunt Ruth doesn't factor back in. Well, other than being dead. Yeah, right. In the other story we're about to start. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Either that woman is not Aunt Ruth and that this apartment has nothing to do with Diane slash Betty or Aunt Ruth or anything, but the dream itself exists on some sort of weird cosmic plane that intersects with something and she senses a noise or a sound and comes in, but there's nothing there because it's like vapor. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe everyone's dead. (laughs) (laughs) It's lost. Who knows what the fuck is yeah. going on? Purgatory. It is interesting that you say that because, yes, this apartment doesn't really factor into anything else now. And presumably it exists. Yeah. They say the whole thing about the dream is you're drawing from things that are from your reality. It might not match what it is in reality. So if you're taking that that's everything, then it would be that she spent some time at this apartment at some point. Yeah. We are transported Back to Diane Selwyn's apartment. We see Diane sleeping in the same position as the body Betty and Rita found. The cowboy enters the bedroom and says, Hey, pretty girl, time to wake up. The shock to the viewer is that Diane looks exactly like Betty. And this is 
part of the stellar performance from Watts. There is almost a physical change. There's a physicality right. to yeah. it. Yes, of course, the makeup and hair plays a part. Totally. But there's she a whole tired. demeanor yeah. to the difference here. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this short little moment here when she first wakes up. First of all, you notice the bathrobe. When she was wearing a bathrobe as Betty, the bathrobe was bright and pink. Yeah. And now this bathrobe has seen some shit. Yeah, yeah. It is dingy and dirty. Right. But more on the bathrobe will come later. The neighbor that we met before who had switched apartments with Diane knocks on the door to retrieve items that have been left behind. A lot of people speculate that this neighbor is an ex-girlfriend, which is possible. I never really went down that rabbit hole because, A, I'm not sure why that matters, and B, I'm not seeing any concrete proof, but maybe I'm wrong. There might be more indication that I'm just not seeing. But I come back to A. No one ever gave a definitive answer on the role of this woman. So even if she is an ex-girlfriend, an ex-roommate, an ex-neighbor, whatever the fuck, I'm not sure how she fits into the story anyway. I'm sure Lynch has some idea and that it's beyond just a woman, but because she appears twice. Right. And the way that she comes to collect these things is sort of weird because she lingers and she's looking around and it's a whole production. So there is probably something there, but I haven't, I've yet to see an answer where I'm like, okay, yeah, that is how she fits into this. I don't know. But she picks up an ashtray, which again is part of a clue. The ashtray is a piano. Oh, yeah. The camera zooms in on the coffee table when she picks up the ashtray and we see a blue key sitting on the coffee table. Right. And we find out from this neighbor lady that two detectives have been looking for Diane. Sure. Which could potentially explain why she switched apartments. They could be... Maybe our two detectives from earlier in the movie. <laughs> I can't even remember their names. McKnight yeah. and something else. Who knows? The way you hold my hand Your laughing eyes The way you understand your secret signs They're all part of 16 reasons why I love you Mulholland Drive is often regarded as one of Lynch's finest works, receiving universal acclaim from critics and audiences alike. It was ranked 28th in the 2012 Sight and Sound Critics Poll, of the best films ever made, and it topped a 2016 BBC poll of the best films since 2000. So obviously big in the UK. Right. Even Roger Ebert, who had strongly criticized much of Lynch's prior work as nihilistic and cruel, gave Mulholland Drive four stars out of four and named it among his great movies. Quote, The movie is a surrealist dreamscape in the form of a Hollywood film noir and the less sense it makes, the more we can't stop watching it. Or thinking about it. Later, he would go on to say, There have been countless dream sequences in the movies, almost all of them conceived with Freudian literalism to show the characters having nightmares about the plot. Mulholland Drive is all dream. There is nothing that is intended to be a waking moment. Like real dreams, it does not explain, does not complete its sequences, lingers over what it finds fascinating, dismisses unpromising plot lines. If you want an explanation for the last half hour of the film, 
Think of it as the dreamer rising slowly to consciousness as threads from the dream fight for space with recent memories from real life and with fragments of other dreams, old ones, and those still in development. Okay. His review concludes, This is a movie to surrender yourself to. If you require logic, see something else. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Mulholland Drive works directly on the emotions, like music. Individual scenes play well by themselves, as they do in dreams, but they don't connect in a way that makes sense, again, like dreams. The way you know the movie is over is that it ends. (laughs) And then you tell a friend, I saw the weirdest movie last night. Just like you tell them you had the weirdest dream. And I think he's probably writing that review based on seeing the film once, maybe. Yeah. So it's not like he has answers, but that's just sort of a, he a reaction piece. was getting more of it than I was the first time. I don't really agree with Ebert on his take of Lynch's work as nihilistic and cruel. Same. He's one of the great film writers, but he doesn't always hit the mark in terms of his opinions, at least as far as I'm concerned. I yeah. think that dismissing blue velvet like that is is definitely a mistake i love lost highway but i can see people not liking it (laughs) and wild at heart is sort of like eccentric yeah but i don't think it's nihilistic and cruel no that's one of his probably least cruel films outside of maybe that might be his most fun the straight story (laughs) or something yeah i think that lost highway in a weird way is sort of like the opposite of mulholland drive it's where he tries to do all of his stuff and it doesn't quite work for people the yeah, same way. Right. It's just too much. You're asking too much at a certain point where you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> because there's something not to spoil lost highway, which I'm sure we'll do on the show at some point, but there's something at the center of the film, which has to be supernatural, but no explanation is provided. Yeah. It which just, is a bummer for people. You, you just yeah. have to accept it, which, okay. You could say there's things that don't make sense about Mulholland drive, but it sort of relies on, I hate to say it, but dream logic. Yeah. You know, it just sort of relies on it being a, a dream. Overall, it was something of a, a comeback for Lynch, even for critics beyond just Roger Ebert. Sure, season one of Twin Peaks was a phenomenon, but at the time, Wild at Heart and Lost Highway were certainly not adored no. in the same way that Blue Velvet, The Elephant Man, and Eraserhead were. And unfortunately, a comeback that didn't really last either. Well, it's hard. Yeah. And the G-rated, the straight story, while appreciated, was not written by Lynch and thus not really considered in the same way as the others. That was just something else entirely. So this was like a culmination of everything. And unfortunately, he didn't really stay the darling. I don't think people embraced Inland Empire in the same way. You can kind of see why he makes so many short films, which he makes seemingly relentlessly over time. yeah. Because he wants complete creative control. He wants final cut. He's he's not concerned about the budget. He wants the budget to be what it's got to be. Right. And he's not in the business of making money. Which is hard for studios. All of those rules. Yeah. The more money you're getting, the harder all of those things become. Yeah, and I think he just doesn't exist. People like him can't exist anymore. Right. He's a a holdover from last generation yeah where there was a certain amount of prestige for warner brothers or paramount or whoever the big studios were to have certain directors yeah 
you know, we're going to make the next Stanley Kubrick movie, no matter if his last movie didn't make money or not. Right, right. Because this is a prestige to have Yeah, Stanley it sucks. Kubrick. We're, like, running out of those guys. Yeah, you even look at some of the main guys now, like, for example, Paul Thomas Anderson, and he uses different studios all the time. It's yeah, not yeah. like there's one studio right. that's like, yes, we're paying for this every time. Yeah. It's just not a thing anymore. There are some theories that state that Betty represents Diane when she was a naive and happy newcomer actress. During the first half of the film concerning the scenes with Betty, the scenes have a dreamy effect and a bright and warmer tint. This is to emphasize that reimagining herself as Betty, Diane had initially had big dreams in Hollywood. As the film goes on, the dreamy effect and the bright and warmer tint gradually fade away. By the middle of the film, Betty's scenes become somewhat darker when she finds herself in the middle of a possible murder and getting involved romantically with Rita. This emphasizes that Diane's experiences in Hollywood is starting to take a turn for the worse and is slowly killing her dreams. In the latter half of the film, the scenes with Diane look gloomy and have a much darker tint. This emphasizes that due to her now horrible experience in Hollywood, Diane's dreams are broken. Now, that definitely falls under more theorizing, but the appearance and the darkness and the lightness of the shots and everything, how it looks, is undeniable, What For sure. no matter what your theories are. It's a noticeable transition. And yeah, now it's a whole different experience now that we're dealing with Diane Selwyn rather than Betty. It's a different world. It's a completely different film. There's definitely an adjustment period. Things have changed, and now the viewer is unsure, discombobulated. Yeah, it takes a little while to figure out like where you are again. It's a new reality to the movie. This is a completely different person, a completely different character. Unlike Betty, Diane is completely beaten down. It looks like merely existing is a struggle for her. Yeah, some hard days. You just open up the fridge pull out like a full two liter bottle of soda and start chugging it. Oh, so me. Yeah. This is my life. <laughs> when the neighbor leaves and Diane is once again left alone, she imagines that she sees Rita, except she's not Rita. Diane calls her Camilla, and so the viewer is thrown for another oh, loop. right. Like, what the fuck? This yeah. is Camilla now? So just to reiterate, Naomi Watts is now Diane, and Laura Haring is now Camilla. She's overcome with joy to the point of tears, and Diane says, you've come back, and then Camilla is gone again. That's right. That's what I was thinking of, when Camilla is gone. Until after Diane finishes making coffee, and then Camilla is back, laying topless on the couch. Diane is no longer wearing the dirty robe. She's topless, too, in cut-off jean shorts. The room is once again brighter and cleaner and different. The ashtray which the neighbor took, is now back on the coffee table and the blue key is missing. So it's the past, you're telling me? Well, we don't know that yet. I'm just reporting the facts right now. (laughs) We don't know what's going on. In this sexual moment, could be fantasy, could be memory, whatever this is, Camilla says, you drive me wild, before abruptly changing her tune and saying, we shouldn't do this anymore. That does remind me of some girls I dated in my life. Thinking everything's going good, then out of the blue. I don't think we should do this anymore. Diane says, don't say that. Don't ever say that. And then 
the moment turns darker, somewhat violent almost. And then she says, it's him, isn't it? Oh, yeah. And then suddenly we're on set. Adam Kesher is the director. Camilla is the star. Adam is showing the lead actor how to kiss Camilla in a car. He clears the set, but Camilla asks if Diane can stay. It seems as if Diane is an extra or just a smaller part actress hanging around. Again, for people who are unsure, Camilla is who we were referring to as Rita. This is a a little confusing. Sure. (laughs) Especially when you're just using names, you don't even see the faces. Musical names. The seed of betrayal and humiliation is planted here. The context clues tell us almost instantly that how Diane feels about Camilla is not necessarily how Camilla feels about Diane. In Diane's mind, this moment on set is crucial. This is the moment things change. She's watching this woman that she loves kiss the director, Adam Kesher, and look at her. Mm -hmm. She keeps looking over at her. Now, as a viewer, you have to wonder, is this real or is this something that Diane is projecting onto this moment? In other words, is this kiss a real thing? It seems very unprofessional for the director to be doing this. Is it really being done at her, the way it's portrayed? Does that matter, though? Yeah. It just matters if it's real. Sure. But either way, unless you're going into hashtag me too territory it seems pretty wild for a director to be kissing the star of the film like this just to show another actor how to do it he's a very hands-on teacher (laughs) but yes it feels directed towards diane in a way that's ultra personal and embarrassing right is she right or is she imagining things is she's making it more in her head we don't know it seems pretty terrible Does Diane actually know the truth of what's happening between Camilla and Adam, or is she constructing it? I don't know. We flash then to the inevitable breakup, it seems. There's sort of a pushing back and forth at the door to the apartment. It's brief, but painful. And then all of a sudden we're back into the apartment. Diane is alone, sobbing. She's also masturbating. Yeah, shocking moment, really. It seems as if her sexual fantasies of her ex-lover, Camilla, are so corrupted that she's resorted to masturbating to memories of her own pain and anguish and humiliation. Familiar territory. (laughs) It's almost like a race to say that. (laughs) It was just put up on a silver Hanging out there. (laughs) Too good to let sit. Folks. (laughs) There's some weird moments here that I'm not sure what Lynch is going for. It's a definite traumatic, jaw-dropping moment, and the look on Naomi Watts' face while she does it is intense and wild. Oh, yeah. But then there's those moments where it like kind of goes out of focus, and you hear that pulsating heartbeat kind of sound for a few seconds, and then it'll come back into focus. Yeah, we've reached maybe our peak unsettling moments of the movie. <laughs> Her little painful self-love session is interrupted by the phone ringing. And she goes to the other room to answer it, and it's a phone sitting on a table next to a lamp with a red lampshade. Ah, yes. Which was the same phone that ended the weird connection of calls between the unseen forces, the Hollywood conspiracy people, Mr. Roke, the back of the head man, all these different people, and then the last call went to this phone. 
It's Camilla on the phone, and to the viewer, at least, because we don't really know yet what the timeline is. It's all a confusing mystery to us. Yeah. But so for the viewer in this moment, it feels like the pain of whatever's happening is now ongoing. Again, you're like, wait a minute. So she just had this weird masturbation moment. She's (laughs) thinking of when things went south and she's crying and it's horrible. And then all of a sudden, Camilla's on the phone and it feels like, wait a minute, this is rushing back and this is still something that's in the process of happening. Right. This is not something in the past as it may have seemed although again we don't know yet unclear the camilla of it all is still very much in the present for diane at least in this moment again i refer to some of david lynch's clues to understanding this movie i think the timeline gets clearer when you start to focus in on things but in this moment it all feels like it's happening right now yeah there's an invitation to a party there's actually a car waiting to pick up diane the address is 6980 Mulholland Drive. Oh, boy. It seems like Diane is sort of unsure if she actually wants to go, but Camilla's insisting. It seems like something Camilla wants her to do. Yeah. So Diane's going to do this all plays out, it feels pretty cruel, I'd say. Yeah. Well, again, we're not sure if we're seeing things just from this paranoid perspective or what. The clues in this situation that are provided to us explain that Diane is a struggling actress driven into a deep depression by her failed affair with Camilla Rhodes, which is the real identity of Rita, a successful actress on the rise. At Camilla's invitation, Diane goes to a party at Adam's house on Mulholland Drive, and it's as if we're transported back to the start of the film. It's the same music. What's that? In the limo, right? Yeah, it's the same music, the shot of the Mulholland Drive street sign, except now it's Diane in the back of the limo. Once again, like in the beginning, before the accident, the car stops suddenly and surprisingly. Diane echoes Rita slash Camilla from the beginning of the film. What are you doing? We don't stop here. She says the exact same thing. Yes, we have some duality at play. Except there's no accident. Camilla is coming to collect Diane to bring her to the party. Seemingly walking like through the woods to get her. Yeah, there's some interesting theories about what this means, okay. and she does refer to it as a shortcut and then a secret path. <laughs> yeah, okay. And so, yes, there's a lot is of the, interpretations about what that might mean and the where short, they're going. The shortcut is somehow better than the driveway. Yeah, I could have just driven up to the house. Yeah. The party itself is a nonstop beatdown on Diane. <laughs> really? <laughs> she is a nobody and nobody cares. Coco is at the party, except... She's no longer the same Coco. She's Adam's mother. Adam mentions that Diane's never met his mother before. And so this, along with the replication of the opening drive, that of the one we saw before with Camilla slash Rita, are context clues about the timing of the dream, perhaps? Yeah. Because why would she dream about things that she hadn't seen before? Correct. So now all of a sudden you're thinking, okay, wait a minute. We thought that we were in the present with this pain with Camilla, but now all of a sudden the timeline is seemingly different than what we may have first suspected. This seems to be in the past. Yes. Which was not abundantly clear before. Right. Because how would you know any of this yet? Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. It would be impossible yet to know this because we haven't learned about the meaning of some of the items yet. And Right. 
what they all symbolize and whatnot. I'm from Deep River, Ontario. A small town. So you rode in here from Canada. I always wanted to come here. I won this jitterbug contest. That sort of led to acting. You know, wanting to act. When my aunt died, anyway, she, she left me some money. She worked here. In the movies? Yes. Well, how did you meet Camilla? On the Sylvia North story. Well, Camilla was great in that. Yo nunca fui a Casablanca con Luigi. Qué va. Yeah. I wanted the lead so bad. Anyway, Camilla got the part. The director. Bob Brooker. Yes. He didn't think so much of me. Anyway, that's when we became friends. She helped me getting some parts in some of her films. I see. So I got the pool, and she got the pool man. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I wanted to buy that judge a Rolls Royce. <laughs> Sometimes good things happen. At dinner, Diane states she came to Hollywood from Canada when her Aunt Ruth died and left her some money. She also mentions winning a jitterbug contest, which harkens back to the opening shot pre-credits. She met Camilla at an audition for, yep, the Sylvia North story. Oh, yeah, you remember that title. Scott Coffey. Yes. Director of Adult, Adult World. World. Making an appearance. Yeah, Camilla was great in that. <laughs> <laughs> There's an interesting, weird thing here. So the director of the movie that... Betty auditions for in the dream yep. is named Bob Brooker. And that's the guy who's credited as directing the Sylvia North story, not Adam Kesher in real life or in this right. moment at this party. In the credits of the film, it says Bob Booker, but they all say Brooker the entire time. Okay. It, it's just a weird little yeah, thing. Yeah. That seems like a mistake. I don't think that means anything. So Bob Brooker is directing it but Adam Kesher directed them both in something else? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So basically, what you can sort of deduce from this information we learn at the party and how much Diane wanted the lead role in the Sylvia North story and then what we saw in her, her dream is that she feels the role should have been hers, that she has this talent and that for a 
variety of reasons it wasn't seen or appreciated. And Camilla, a.k.a. This is the girl. This is the girl. Is somebody else entirely in the dream. Because Camilla Rhodes is an idea chosen by the secret unseen powers that control Hollywood. It's just dumb luck. And so it's not the Camilla Diane knows in the fantasy. Camilla Rhodes is not Camilla Rhodes. It's more an idea. Right, right. And so it's someone else in her fantasy, so that that, that leaves her her Camilla to be not involved in that at all. Yeah, yeah. The people from the dream are at the party, including the girl we thought was Camilla Rhodes, the one played by <laughs> Melissa George. Yes. The unknown blonde. She kisses new Camilla... And yeah. they turn and smile at Diane. A very forward move. Diane is seething, yeah. humiliated. <laughs> it seems like Camilla may be dating like everybody at this party. Yeah, well, that's definitely how it seems to Diane. Yeah. We see the cowboy briefly walking through the background. That's right, elusive. So his doppelganger is essentially just himself, we think. We don't really know. Right. A tear slides down Diane's cheek. Adam and Camilla prepare to make an important announcement, presumably an engagement, but we never actually even get that far. Yeah. Because they just devolve into laughter. And Although kiss. how the Melissa George character is a part of this whole relationship. It's a thruple. I'm interested, yeah. While Diane just watches crying. Why did you want to invite me to this party? Yeah, it seems cruel. But again... We're seeing it from her perspective. Is it really... Is all of this happening at her this aggressively? A lot of people speculate that Diane suffers from borderline personality disorder or some other kind of mental illness. So yeah. I'm not sure if we're just supposed to be taking this at face value or if we're seeing this from her perspective, which might be right. not 100% accurate. Going with the Sunset Boulevard thing, there could be some delusion going on. Yeah. You think there might be delusion in Mom? <laughs> Maybe just a little bit. It's basically a worst nightmare scenario, <laughs> seemingly heightened by her own paranoia, but we don't know for sure. We know that this is all from Diane's perspective, and that's how we're presumably seeing things, and it does feel like the entire party is a mean prank directed at her. Unknown why that would be, <laughs> but that's yeah. how it feels to her. Everyone's mean. Sorry about that. No, I'm fine. This is the girl. Don't show me this fucking thing here. It's just an actress's photo resume. Everybody's got one. You got the money? I sure do. Okay, now once you hand that over to me, it's a done deal. You sure you want this? anything in this world. Well, 
is finished, you'll find this where I told you. What's it open? Dishes clatter at the party, breaking the scene and transitioning us out of the party and into Winkies again. Yes, the same Winkies. Except now it's Diane meeting Joe. Oh yeah, Joe, the inept hitman from earlier. He's back. The waitress is the same, only this time her name tag tells us her name is Betty. Oh boy. I just wrote, for fuck's sake. <laughs> I mean, could yeah. you please? <laughs> oh God. I love the theories about the waitress. I love it. We're not going to get into them, probably, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah. It There's not enough time to get into the theories of everything. Diane hires the hitman to kill Camilla, sliding her headshot across the table, saying... This is the girl. This is the girl. The hitman tells Diane she will find a blue key when the job is completed. Boom. Like a punch to the face... You think of the blue key. Yep. First of all, the one on her fucking coffee table, and all of a sudden the timeline is now crystallizing, and you're like, oh, shit, it's too late. And you're also thinking about the blue key in her own dream, which didn't look the same, but it's still a blue key. Right. So obviously it symbolized something in her dream. She's still missing. And then fucking Dan is standing by the cash register. Yes, Patrick Fischler, the actor from the fucking... Winky scene before, it's just looking at her, and she's looking back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're sharing this sort intimate knowledge, and then Diane asks... Sh- a shared moment of horror. What's it open? And the hitman just laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> Behind Winky's, the terrifying person from Dan's dream is revealed to have the matching blue box. How about that? The one that Betty discovered in her purse at club silencio how did the person behind winkies get that box into that purse i don't know (laughs) and then things get real weird (laughs) (laughs) finally a miniature elderly couple who appear to be irene and her gentleman companion from the dream or the jitterbug people yeah scurry about laughing maniacally running out of the blue box that's now on the ground and when i say mini i'm talking microscopic (laughs) It kind of sounds comedic, but I assure you it's not. Yeah, it's disconcerting because you're thinking, wait a minute, what now is happening? (laughs) We thought we were out of the dream. Is this happening in real life? Right. Is this all in Diane's head? We don't know. This whole like very last sequence kind of reminds me of Requiem for a Dream a little bit. Yeah. You know the way the end of that movie builds up and then how it ends? Yeah. Ass to ass. Yeah. No, I'm assuming you're referencing the Ellen Burstyn one more than anything else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In her apartment, wearing the robe, holding a coffee cup that's now actually on her coffee table, Diane stares at the blue key, which is also on the coffee table. There's knocking at the door. She's clearly haunted, both figuratively and then literally. The sound effects start coming up before anything's happening, where it's like a woman screaming. Right. 
when she's not screaming yet. It's very odd and terrifying. And then those fucking miniature people, they come from underneath the door, and then suddenly Irene and that man are full size, grinning maniacally, (laughs) chasing her through the apartment. Attack hugging her. (laughs) Attack hug. Yeah. And so she's confronted now with these people that we're not entirely sure who they are. A lot of people assume that they're the jitterbug judges. We don't really know. (laughs) They made the trip from Ontario. For sure what's going on. Distraught, Diane is terrorized by these visions and runs screaming to her bed where she retrieves a gun and shoots herself. Then it's a quick vision of the person behind Winkies, which fades into a nighttime shot of the city of Los Angeles... The happy, smiling Betty with blonde Rita. Mm-hmm. Then we're back at the theater. The woman with blue hair in the balcony whispers, Silencio. Chef's kiss. And that's it. That's the end of the movie. Yep. In a weird way, the ending feels abrupt because you don't necessarily see it coming the first time. End credits song, Say Goodbye to Hollywood by Billy Joel starts blasting. <laughs> And it's not how our brains work when it comes to stories. We're expecting a more definitive conclusion and explanation for what we just watched. Right. And it's almost ridiculous and cliche to say it with a movie like Mulholland Drive, but of course it rewards multiple viewings. It's almost impossible to even understand totally. it yes. on one time. Other than just to click with the vibe, you're not going to really fully get what just happened, even at a surface level, which is complicated enough. I mean... Multiple viewings, I'm still not all the way there. (laughs) I don't think anyone is. Yeah. I think people know what Mulholland Drive is to them, but they don't trust it. They want to have someone else tell them. I love people analyzing it, but they don't need me to help them out. That's the beautiful thing, to figure things out as a detective. Telling them robs them of the joy of thinking it through and feeling it through and coming to a conclusion. That's what David Lynch had to say in Lynch on Lynch. That's why he's a great director. I just wanted to use that as sort of a warning because now we're going to ruin the movie. Not by like spoiling it, but just ruining it. (laughs) (laughs) Saying dumb things. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Giving our very pedestrian opinions and theories that are not that smart. No. In fact, mine's pretty grounded compared to what's out there. Yeah. I just figured we should go back through his clues and see what we make of them now. And then we'll give our overall takes on what we think about the movie, our theories and whatnot. Mine's a little long, and it's sort of like three parts, but it's still kind of basic. Yeah. I explored some of the wilder stuff. I went on the Mulholland Drive website or whatever it's called. I don't even remember. Some fan site that's like a wiki that has like articles and articles. And yeah... At the end of the day, even a site like that is just posting a bunch of different people's opinions on one thing, right. one aspect. This is what we think of Louise. This is what we think of the bum. This is what we think of the cowboy. You know, and it's there's no one coherent answer to all of this. Yeah, yeah. You have one person who thinks it's this and one person who thinks it's that. I think the first thing that probably to establish is what the fuck is the story on a surface level and figure that out, which is complicated enough. And then you get deeper into the the meanings of things and trying to decipher what David Lynch is trying to convey with this story. Let's go through the clues. David Lynch's 10 clues to unlocking this thriller. Take two. Shortcut. 
Come on, sweetheart. Number one, pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. So go ahead. You thought yeah, for I think sure unquestionably, the pillow... yeah, the pillow and like the camera's like coming down towards the pillow, like a head hitting the pillow. But I don't know. I think that's definitely one. I don't know what the other one is. It could be the sound of potentially inhaling something. Right. This whole little sequence of the jitterbug thing and what's going on there with like things in the foreground, silhouettes in the background. I don't know. There could be something to that. Yeah, I think that the only things I really pulled out of the pre-credit stuff is the jitterbug scene, which shows Diane pre-Hollywood. So this is her closest to being Betty. Right. If you go down the road of Betty is a version of her like pre-corruption Yes, and which is the just, road I go down. Not just idealized. Because, well, there's a version of it where it's like, this is what she wishes she was. Yeah, like yeah, her yeah idealized okay, right, version. Yeah. But there's also partially maybe this is who she used to be. So then you see the elderly couple. I have a lot of different thoughts. A lot of people assume the elderly couple are the jitterbug judges. I also thought they could be stand-ins for Aunt Ruth, for her parents, yeah, for any sort of connection to her hometown. Right. But they also represent old traditional values, probably. Sure, yes. And these would be the people that Diane would feel she most disappointed by doing what she does. Definitely. And their judgment haunts her at her lowest point. Now, again, when I say do what she does, on the surface level, that is hire a hitman to kill another woman. Right. But, again, you could read more into it that there's a lot more going on just beyond that. Sure. But I don't know. But regardless of what she does, it seems like she's at a bad place by the end. And she's upset at their presence and they're haunting her. And the only real reason they would have to haunt her is to sort of be a reminder of her failures, her disappointments. Yes. Who she used to be. And the fall from grace it's been. Number two, notice appearances of the red lampshade. Not one I've spent a lot of time thinking about. Eventually, we realize the red lampshade is in Diane's own apartment. But that's not until the end of the film, when she gets the call from Camilla. The first time we see it is at the end of the chain of phone calls involving Mr. Roke and all of those unseen forces that make things happen in Hollywood that choose who the girl will be. This is part of the conspiracy Diane has constructed to absolve herself of guilt. But even in the fantasy, it all leads back to her. So, as you said, you got the sense from that first chain of phone calls that they were expecting Rita, whoever she is in the dream, to be killed. Yeah, yeah. And they were waiting for confirmation. Because in the fantasy, somebody hired the hitman that failed because of the drag racers yes in the fantasy we don't know who it is right but the, the unknown powers phone calls yeah. goes back to, to the her phone yeah. next okay. to the red right. lampshade yeah. so of course. even in her fantasy it has to come back to her she put these events in motion although we don't see her answer the phone yep the location and appearance of the red lampshade also carries additional significance because it's where diane received the call from camilla that ignited everything and pushed diane over the edge 
So the second time we see the phone, it's when Camilla calls, invites her to the party. The party is key. It's a <laughs> an inciting yeah. incident for right. her. Yes. <laughs> Pushes things over the edge. She was probably on the edge already, but that was, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was all it took. <laughs> you motherfuckers. <laughs> yeah, really. Number three, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? The title of the film is The Sylvia North Story. Of course. It's not that hidden. No. That one, I think, is pretty easy to pick up on, too. The film in Diane's Dream is the very one discussed at Adam's party. It's the role Diane desperately wanted, but Camilla got and then became a star with. The eventual subtext is that Camilla is sleeping her way to the top. It's also where Diane and Camilla met, so it was the start of a toxic relationship, to be sure. And the name, the Sylvia North story, it does sort of hearken to other David Lynch material. North, Sylvia North, it sounds very Lynchian to me. Okay, yeah. It makes you think of Twin Peaks or something. Okay. Trees. Right. Deep River, Ontario. Yeah. It's all kind of that <laughs> yeah. Pacific Northwest vibe. But that seems very straightforward. I'm sure there are interpretations that go deeper than that. But I do hear the title of the film. And yes, it is mentioned at the party. I don't know. What else is there? Number four, an accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. Is this just supposed to be that the location of the accident is where she gets dropped off later? Or is there something more to it than that? I think so. Okay. The accident at the beginning of the film is the same place where the limo stops when taking Diane to Adam's party. Yes. Mulholland Drive. Okay, sure. The party is significant and defines Diane's choices going forward, which I just reiterated. I think there could be more depending on your interpretation of what Camilla says when she gets Diane about the shortcut and all that stuff, but I don't know. I just think it's sort of making you think that Diane and Camilla are the same person. (laughs) Yes. Because it is odd how they double those scenes. Yes, I know one is a dream, but they say the same things and, I don't know, the stuff with the hair and then the the weird doubling when they run out of that apartment. I don't know. True. I do think that Mulholland Drive can be interpreted a lot of different ways and it just depends on how deep you want to go. Yeah. If you want to just stick to the noir mystery of it, that's complicated enough. Then there's like the next layer, which is the symbolism of all this stuff. Yeah. And then there's like the third, which is a lot of these characters are all just Diane and they're all different parts of her and right. what she's done to herself by going to Hollywood and selling out her soul, basically. Yeah. I guess you have to make a decision there then on your interpretation. If you're if you're going to go that Diane and Camilla are two different people or are the same person and what the impacts of the action are. Yeah. I still was going down the road of two different, but I can get behind. It's this, There's like a definitely enough there to say it's the same person. Yeah, and I think that that's sort of just how it works, where there's always multiple interpretations available, and yeah. neither are wrong right, or right. right or anything, because I think Lynch creates things specifically designed for that, where... Yeah. There's a lot of different ways to approach it. Number five, who gives a key and why? Well, this one seems obvious, but we can sort of dig into it. First of all, Coco gives Betty a key to access the apartment, and then the hitman uses a blue key to signify when the job is completed. 
and Camilla is dead. In the dream, the blue key in Rita's purse is essentially the mirror of the blue key in reality. This time in the dream, potentially used to unlock the truth about Betty. Betty is either who Diane used to be before being corrupted by Hollywood or is who Diane wants to be and wants to be seen as. In order for Camilla to see Diane this way, her memory needs to be erased. Yes. That's why there's a fantasy. Because she'll never see her that way unless she's completely set back to zero. Right. The blue key is a symbol of guilt, and in the dream it also unlocks the truth, which is why Betty disappears and can no longer exist when it's used by Rita. Because the truth is, there is Betty's no Betty. not real. Betty's gone. But is there more to who gives a key and why? I was really stumped about the Coco thing because for all the times I've watched this movie, I knew this list existed, but I never really paid too much attention. cared about yeah. it that much. I don't know. I just sort of appreciated the film and moved on with my life. I didn't really want to explore these various clues, but in preparation for this podcast, I wrote the clues down. I'm thinking about them. Then I'm watching it. The first person you see give out a key is Coco. Yeah, I didn't think about that one. And I'm thinking, okay, I do think that there's more to unearth with Coco and Louise and the right. whole apartment complex and yeah. what they all mean and how they connect to old Hollywood. Because it I seems agree. deliberate to cast. Yes, it's heavy-handed. Yeah, former like, stars, and I don't know. There's something not, to it, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm not sure what it all really means. It could be allusions to things and whatnot. I don't know. Notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. Do you have anything for this? No. <laughs> this is one of the ones that I feel like is not bright in your face. Other than the obvious things with the robe and the, the changes from Betty to Diane, I don't know, is there something similar with the coffee cup? Is, is it more deteriorated than earlier? I think the thing with these three items is they basically help straighten out the nonlinear post-dream timeline. I see. So when she wakes up, these are the context clues to figure out what you're seeing and when that I see okay yeah yeah that makes sense they also track when the blue key is first seen on the coffee table indicating that much of what we're seeing including all Camilla appearances outside of the dream are flashbacks anytime we see Camilla post Diane waking up being told by the cowboy to wake up is not happening in the present even though it feels like it is. Yes. Because she's masturbating and then gets that call and everything, and it seems right. like that's all happening at the same time. It's not. Yeah. And the only way to track that is when she's wearing the robe and not wearing the robe, or when the coffee cup is on the table, when it's not on the table. I see. When yeah. it's in the kitchen, and the ashtray, because we see the neighbor pick up the ashtray, and when she picks up that ashtray, the blue key is there. Okay. And then when she's having sex with Camilla or trying to have sex with Camilla on the couch... The ashtray is back. Obviously, the blue key wouldn't be there. I think you can logic your way to the order of things. But yeah, that, yeah I, that makes sense, though. I think that's a way just to keep track of yeah. what you're seeing. It and then definitively once, tells you. Once you get the clue about the key, it, it is kind of straightforward. There might be more to it than that, but that's what all I really came up with is just a way to track the yeah. time. And the robe is also fun to compare to the robe Diane wears as Betty in the dream, right. which is way nicer yeah. and brighter. What is felt, realized, and gathered at the Club Silencio? This is number seven. This is much more of an interpretive... Is this a clue or a question? <laughs> yeah, it's much more of an interpretive answer, I think. I, I don't know that there's 
anything as defined, but it's more of how you process what you're seeing. Yeah. There's definitely a heavy sadness in it. It feels like things are being realized. It seems to me that what is being understood, especially by Betty, is that it's all an illusion and then eventually the illusion will have to come to an end no matter how real it may have seemed at the time. And that's when she discovers the blue box in her purse. Not sure if there's more to it than that. Right. Because, again, that feels much more of a an opinion type answer than a definitive answer. I don't know. Number eight, did talent alone help Camilla? No. And end of at number eight. No. <laughs> Diane, who ain't too great herself, let's be real. Okay. Fell in love with the wrong person. Yeah. Camilla is capitalizing on a corrupt Hollywood system using sex to climb to the top. Her feelings for Diane may or may not be real, but to her feelings don't really matter. Yeah. Getting ahead does. And yes, Diane ain't perfect either, but she's having a hard time coming to grips with this. <laughs> that combined with her own failure. Sure. Too. Yeah. But losing out on this relationship also feels like part of that. And that doesn't even matter how you interpret the film, whether they're all the same person or it's all in her head or whatever the fuck. That's sort of what we're seeing is that this failure, both professionally and personally, is the thing that's driving her insane number nine note the occurrences surrounding the man behind winkies question mark okay is it two what do you mean the occurrences of the man behind winkies i don't know how many occurrences is it how many times do you see him yeah i guess that's the way i was interpreting it at least three okay there's the first time yeah with dan right the second time with the blue box and then the third time which is the end okay right yeah I think that's it, but there might be more. But it says the occurrences surrounding the man. Oh, okay, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I'm I guess I didn't sure. even understand the question, so. I think the man behind Winkies is Diane's true nature. That's my best guess. Yeah. The part of her that would kill, but or I the, will admit the that. The darkest it, part of her character. I will admit it's probably more than that. Yeah. Uh, it could be symbolic of the dark heart of Hollywood. The or real, both, Yeah. I think... Underbelly? Yeah. Both are a big part of the movie and what what it's about. And I think it's the dark underbelly of Hollywood and the darkness that lives inside Diane, whether it's always been there or it's something that's come to be over her hardships. The first occurrence, the time with Dan, seems to be suggesting that real life is as bad as the nightmare and that the nightmare is real. But we also know that Diane's dream is not real. Right. Or at least we think it's not real. So it could be something about the inescapability of the darkness of the truth. Maybe if Betty is the idealized version of Diane, then the being behind Winkies is her worst fear of who she really is. Yeah. It could also be the angel of death because people seem to die. Sure. When we see it. That could be the occurrence. Dan, Camilla because that's when they're hiring the hitman. And then again at the end when Diane commits suicide. But that seems... A little hokey. Yeah, it doesn't seem right to me. But it could be some part of all of those things. Yeah, right. I don't know. It could just be that we take David Lynch at his word where he just says, you know, I meditate and ideas come to me and then I just put them together. Right. And then he acts like that's normal and that's a story. (laughs) And we all sort of laugh and... 
say, no, 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 there must be much more to this. Yeah. But then <laughs> deep down, he's like, nope. There's really Did not. you see the guy with the glove in Twin Peaks yeah. Season 3? <laughs> <laughs> Number 10, where is Aunt Ruth? This one is hard to answer. We've already sort of touched on our inability to explain it. I guess the only thing you can really say here is she's dead. It definitely seems like she's dead. That's what we're told outside of the dream. Yeah. Making a movie in Canada, as I said, an old joke. So even in the dream, that seems to be the same. Right. That, How that, does her being dead like actually play into what you're trying to figure out, though? I don't know. Yeah. Well, that's why I don't know what this clue means. Right. Like, what yeah. is, where is Aunt Ruth? I don't know, and I don't know what the what the answer would mean. Some people have speculated that when we see her after Rita uses the key and opens the box, that that's a ghost. That somehow the ghost is interacting with the dream, and that's the moment of the dream ending and coming back, and she's stuck between the two. I don't know. Okay. Right. But we don't even know if that woman is Aunt Ruth. Yeah. Remember, we're not <laughs> right. convinced anymore because what is that apartment? That's Correct, not really yeah. where Diane lives. Right. Is that where she lived with Camilla at one point? Maybe. I don't know. We don't know. Sure. Some people say this is Ruth's story all along, and Ruth is really Diane slash Betty, and this is the story of her coming to Hollywood and sleeping around yeah. to make her way to the top and not being able to live with it. Again, I don't know if that really matters, though, because right. you're just playing as you said musical names it's yeah. just okay okay the name is different then who is <laughs> right. aunt ruth to us nobody yeah, exactly some people think that aunt ruth is the blue-haired woman at club silencio and that that is her in the afterlife and laura and ronette are dead too i don't know <laughs> i don't know there's a lot Folks. there people can really go quite a ways with this stuff Hey, pretty girl. Time to wake up. So let's give our final theories and thoughts. Okay. I'm going to let you go first. We're going to try to vomit it all out, and then we'll react to each other's things. Yeah. Like I said, mine is very long, so we'll have to figure out how to split that up. Mine's... I have it in three parts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> mine's fairly basic. It's probably like the one where, as people are analyzing this stuff like yeah yeah that's the obvious part but then you we know, gotta go deeper yeah yeah first i'd just say that in most movies it would probably really annoy me if the majority of it was a dream but for this movie and i think like with lynch in general and like the importance that he puts on dreams it's not really just a dream it's the subconscious trying to maybe rationalize things figure things out it's like this progression of Diane dealing with what she's done and what has led her to this. And I think some of the things that are symbolic throughout the movie, including like the bum, <laughs> the darkness, I really do think it's just the greater darkness, both for Diane and this sort of darkness of Hollywood. We start off with like the bright sunny days. She's bright eyed and bushy tailed coming in thinking that everything's going to be, she's going to have this, crazy good audition and become a big star and become the next big thing and it sort of doesn't work out and I think like what we see is a lot of the sadness from that and it's compounded with this failed relationship with Camilla who is getting everything that Diane wants in my world I'm still going with the there is a Diane and there is a Camilla 
and it's not just one person. But the things that you see with the hitman, I don't know if I feel like she actually does something different than hire a hitman, but whatever, in whatever way she plays a part in Camilla being killed. And wow. I'm, you're thinking there's something else. I'm thinking it's a possibility. Okay. But the whole thing with the hitman being inept or whatever, it seems like she's struggling with her decision. I think. Yeah. She's feeling guilt. She's feeling denial over it. And that's what we're seeing play out in this fantasy sequence. And then simultaneously, like the Hollywood stuff, which I think is there's a lot of meta stuff thrown in there about Lynch's opinions on some of this. But then the idea of what you talked about throughout, it's not her that's in her way. It's all of these other things, like these idiot directors and these mysterious forces at play that are deciding who the next big thing are. Like, it's not her own shortcomings that are keeping her from success it's everything else it's the conspiracy and somehow this cowboy dude is hollywood it's the controlling factors of hollywood but it's also like this fleeting thing that is escaping her and she's not going to get what she sought out to get i don't think that i go wildly farther with anything else i think that lynch accomplishes the two things that he's usually most interested in which is dreams and their significance and then also the idea of something seeming great and the dark underbelly that's beneath that and the discovery of that and i think that those two are both prominent details of maholland drive yeah i think with lynch in particular because of his whole approach to cinema and feeling like entering cinema is a dream itself that you can't really judge his use of dreams the same way that you would if it was like, I don't know, some TV show and the whole episode was a dream. And you're like, well, what was the point? <laughs> the whole that? series was a dream. Or whatever. Yeah. I get what you're saying because a lot of times it feels like a stupid cop out or something. Or you're sort of confused as to what the whole point was. Right. It, it was felt like you, dream. S- you spent time that didn't matter. But that's clearly not the case here. Yeah, and it, that's never really how it works with Lynch's stuff, just because of how he thinks of dreams. Right. And knowing that and applying that to his stuff, that you know that the dream stuff is always just as valuable as anything else because it's part of the overall story. It's not yeah. some weird gimmick or something like that. It's just as valuable. And having Diane wake up three quarters of the way through the movie doesn't really change anything because you're trying to decipher the whole thing. You know that that first three quarters of the way meant something. You just got to piece it all together. Still trying to figure out that Monica Bellucci dream. right outside your house. It's 
been waiting, okay? Okay. It's 6980 Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. Okay, so my overall theory sort of builds on that, starting with the surface level stuff, which I think is important to clarify. Because regardless of how some people act, I do think that some of the surface level stuff is a little debatable. (laughs) It's not a linear story. and It's not straightforward all the time. And so I do think that some of that can play into your overall theory because some people might differ on some of these topics. So my first part is that more surface level reading and trying to organize everything. Diane Selwyn is real. Diane Selwyn is portrayed by Naomi Watts. Diane is dreaming for the first three quarters of the film, reimagining her life in a multitude of ways. Betty, Diane's doppelganger, is a manifestation of either how Diane once was or how Diane wants to be and wants to be seen, especially by Camilla. Betty is pure, also a naive idealist untouched by the true horrors of Hollywood. She is insanely talented and full of hope and promise. Another aspect of Diane's dream is her selfish and pathetic desire to not only distance herself from her own guilt over what she did to Camilla, but also to recreate Camilla as a blank slate, one over which Diane has total control and one who exists as pliable and completely dependent while also remaining simultaneously seductive and innocent. How do you get there? Dream world. Amnesia. Camilla is real. Camilla is portrayed by Laura Haring. While Diane is failing in her attempts to make it big as an actress, Camilla Rhodes is becoming a star. Diane and Camilla meet at an audition and become lovers, but as Camilla ascended, Diane stayed stagnant and did not ascend. The implication is that Camilla seized upon certain opportunities made available to her and utilized sexuality to advance her career. This is more implicit than explicit. Regardless of how definitive people are, I still would describe that as implicit, not explicit, because we don't actually see her do anything other than kiss Adam Kesher a couple times, and they have a relationship. People have relationships that are consensual. It's not that big of a deal, but we know how Diane thinks about it for sure. Right, yeah. Diane, left behind and feeling cast aside by Camilla, becomes severely depressed. She's also mentally ill, seemingly suffering from borderline personality disorder. The humiliation at Adam's party is the inciting incident, the straw that broke the camel's back and pushes Diane to do the unthinkable, she hires a hitman to kill Camilla. Again, this is all very surface-level stuff, but I'm just organizing it. People would probably debate whether or not this is all real. I'm sort of pushing that what I'm saying is real, in my mind. Yeah, yeah. The way I'm interpreting it. But on a surface level, Diane then cannot deal with the guilt and regret, fluctuating between reality, her own warped fantasies, paranoid delusions and painful memories in diane's dream camilla is not camilla camilla is just an idea an abstraction lending credence to the theory that powerful unseen forces control things behind the scenes and make choices in hollywood that have nothing to do with talent or who deserves it 
this vast conspiracy, at least in the dream, is a layer of insulation for Diane against her own shortcomings and are also responsible for what happened to Camilla. In the dream, though, Camilla is not Camilla. The fantasy Camilla is portrayed by Melissa George, a doppelganger for a suspected sexual rival, potentially. Not sure who she is in real life. Just a girl that kissed Camilla. As evidenced by what transpired at Adam's party, in the dream, she is the girl for no other reason than someone else decided it. Mr. Roke, the gangsters, the cowboy, doesn't matter who had the final word. Irrelevant. This gives Diana reason for not achieving her dreams of stardom and, in the fantasy, keeps the real Camilla out of it entirely, which preserves her for Diane and strips away from Camilla either any credit she may actually deserve or any blame for what she's done to get ahead. She's once again pure and just not a part of it at all. Most of the characters in the fantasy are doppelgangers or doubles of real-life versions many of which are people Diane encountered at that fateful party, but some, such as Adam Kesher, are similar to who they are in real life, but manipulated in a way that fits Diane's view of things or how they should be. Example, Adam is humiliated, cucked, passive, not in control. Oh, yeah. He loses the movie. He loses his wife. Powerless. Where the dream fits on the timeline is sort of elusive and tricky, as it's presented in a way that makes it seem as if the dream is incorporating elements of the past, present, and future. However, David Lynch's clue number six, notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup, seems to be designed to clarify the non-dream timeline of events, putting the dream after most of what we see. Right. The key's presence means the job is already done and Camilla is already dead. A lot of what we're seeing outside of the dream is already in the past. So this is the surface-level stuff. I think it's pretty legitimate. Of course, you can go deeper with your interpretations of what all this stuff means, but that's sort of explaining the idea of what we see in the film. Yeah. The hitman sucks for a reason. Right. Because she wishes that he sucked, because she regrets what she did. Exactly. Adam can't satisfy his wife sexually because she wishes. He's inept, too. Adam sucked because she can't imagine him fucking Camilla. Everyone she wants to be inept is in this world. And Diane should be a star. In the fantasy, she gives this audition that blows everybody away. And the only idiot in that group is the director that didn't Seemingly not paying attention. Yeah. It's a wish as much as it is a dream. Right. Okay. Part two. Okay, here we go. <laughs> People are like, enough. Enough. <laughs> Theodore really getting his money with this listener request. That's right, yeah. Going above and beyond. Well, we knew we were going to do it eventually. Cross it off the list. We're doing it. Uh, Yep. So I will shout out a certain YouTube video that both Matt and I did watch. I don't agree with everything this guy says. I don't really appreciate his impression of David Lynch. (laughs) It's offensive, Which seems unnecessary, really. I don't really know why he's doing it. But he makes a lot of good points. It's super well-researched. And I do think, without question, some of the things he's bringing up are a part of it. Yeah, and I think his overall idea is a part of it, too. Yeah, I just don't think it's like the dominant thing. Yeah, I think that's the key. It's it's a little tunnel vision on one thing where I think there's much more to it. And some of the stuff he does, especially as it goes, isn't something I would necessarily agree with. But 
You can find it on YouTube, The Terrible Secret of Mulholland Drive by a user called Twin Perfect. The general idea of his video is that what we're seeing is one person's Hollywood dream and how this dream comes crumbling down. A lot of it has to do with the sordid history of Hollywood with the casting couch, the hashtag Me Too stuff, all parts of Diane's internal struggle. Everyone, both Camilla and Diane, are all sort of part of the internal struggle, what she has to do, how she tries to live with it, various things like that. And I do think that Harvey Weinstein, a lot of the sexual misconduct stuff that have come out in all of the years since Mulholland Drive, it definitely wouldn't surprise me if a lot of that was a huge influence on David Lynch. I'm oh, sure yeah. he knew a lot of stuff, as did most people, about what really goes on. And look, I think most people understand that the idea of the producer's casting couch did not start with Harvey Weinstein, that it's an idea as old as Hollywood itself. Oh, yeah. That's the dark underbelly that you never got shown in the movies about going to Hollywood and becoming a star Mm. and everything working out. Staying in a nice apartment. As they say, stars are not born, they're made. That's right. So a big part of appreciating Mulholland Drive to its fullest is steeped in semiotics, which is the study of signs and symbols and their use or interpretation, and also the idea of abstractions versus real, actual people as characters. David Lynch himself has admitted to using abstractions. The example that he admitted to was Bob in Twin Peaks, that it's not a real person. It's an idea of a thing. And how I think that that probably rings true for most of Lynch's work, with possible exceptions to Wild at Heart or... Straight Story. Man or Straight Story or something like that. But a lot of his other stuff, his surreal stuff is probably steeped in that. And so the further you want to go, you can go. And we're not here to tell you how to do that, but we have some ideas. And I do think that Twin Perfect on YouTube was definitely addressing a big part of it. Although I think that the underbelly of Hollywood goes even bigger than just the Me Too stuff. The rotting corpses hidden, the murders, the drugs, the suicides... The backstabbing, the lying, the cheating, whatever. Just endless. Right. Lynch is working out the demons that come hand in hand with Hollywood. The dark side, the underbelly of the Hollywood dream. These elements are woven into the surface level story, but also come together to serve as their own undeniable entity. Harvey Weinstein, hashtag me too, Hollywood casting couches, all deeply entrenched in Hollywood tradition, all a part of the conspiracy of silence. And then what comes after that? What are you left with? Demented, soulless husks bumping around and into each other all over Los Angeles. The Hollywood dream is more like a nightmare sometimes. Oh, yeah. No wonder Lynch loves Sunset Boulevard so much. Just look what stardom did to Norma Desmond. That's right. And I definitely think the Desmond thing, that plays into this delusional. Norma Desmond, we see her delusion from another character's perspective yeah this is now we've been put into norma's mind almost it's different but that's more of the idea is camilla just a part of diane is giving in to the casting couch expectations just a part of diane's journey it's possible that mulholland drive is really just about the death of a dream the death of innocence 
How much desperation do you think your average successful film director encounters every single day? And even when you do get what you want, happiness is never guaranteed, especially when you consider what it took to climb that mountain. The ones who never make it at all can throw themselves off of the Hollywood sign while some of the most famous actors and actresses can overdose in their mansions. Yes, it's the city of dreams, and sometimes dreams do come true, but dreams themselves are also slippery and elusive, much like Mulholland Drive, the story itself. Jay Hoberman of The Village Voice called the film, quote, a poisonous valentine to Hollywood, and I definitely find that true. It's an actually a pretty astute observation for a reviewer who probably just watched it once. Lynch is turning our preconceived ideas of Hollywood against us, lifting up the rock to show us the rot that is concealed underneath. And I do think that on a deeper level without getting into two specifics of what means what and blah, 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 blah. That's sort of what it's about. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Part of it. Yeah. And then finally my part three, which is... It's a long paragraph, too. Not as long as the others, but I could summarize by saying, this movie doesn't make sense. The end. <laughs> Mulholland Drive is surrealist. The explanations loop over and around each other, sort of a circular logic, sometimes working in unison, but sometimes contradicting each other. I've read and watched so many explanations over the years, and they start to blend together, but they ultimately do little to convince me that there is one true coherent explanation that fits every single element together in one satisfying way. Everybody probably hits on some things correctly. Sure. And some things could probably mean more than one thing. That's what people fail to understand, I think, about something like this, a work like this, whereas... If you got Lynch to admit under oath like what something means, he may say yes to two different things. Like, yeah. yes, this means this, and yes, it also means that. <laughs> and be telling the truth. Because I think it's sort of designed that way. Right, right. He works with these dual meaning things all the time, and I think that he builds those in on purpose. Yeah. You could interpret it this way, and there's value to that. And you could interpret it this way, and there's value to that. And not one necessarily has more value than the other. It's just... The fact that both could exist, that's where the value is. Yeah, and that sort of goes hand in hand with the doubling, which is like a big part of the film anyway. Right. With the two of most of the characters and all of that stuff. It's obviously up to your own preference, but I think it's designed in a way that will never fully add up like leftover screws and pieces when you're assembling furniture from Ikea or something. You're just like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> what yeah. are these things now? It's lazy and cliche to just file anything weird or unknown as quote-unquote Lynchian and leave it at that, but there's always some element of exactly that inherent in his work. <laughs> really? It's a catch-all phrase. It's overused by people when they talk about his stuff or compare his stuff to other people's work, but if you weren't using that word, you'd have to come up with another one. It's sort of like the catch-all sure. word for yeah. some of this stuff, and I'm not just talking about, oh... Angelo Badalamente spitting the espresso out. I'm talking about the deeper things, too. Oh, the yeah. dream world, the dream logic, which is another overused phrase. But these things all sort of swirl together to create a vibe, a film, that in this case works wonderfully, but is a little bit out of reach in terms of ever fully grasping it. Mulholland Drive makes sense, and is a fully realized vision, but not everything has a concrete answer. Even a writer-director's answer 
is not necessarily definitive, and that's why Lynch never explains anything anyway. He would ruin it because people would take that as definitive. Right, but that's not the but idea. I don't think that yeah. there is a definitive answer necessarily because he works a lot from what feels like gut instinct and what feels right to him. Yes. He's not worried about a plot or how this all fits and makes sense. It's like, does this oh, feel yeah. right for this? You talk about the Twin Peaks pilot, for example, and the Bob character and what that is and becomes... That was made up on the fly because he walked into a room and saw Bob, the stuntman, messing around in Laura Palmer's room. Right. Compare that with a recent director we talked about on a revisited, Richard Kelly with Donnie Darko, who wouldn't shut up and try to explain everything. Yeah, I know. And I love Donnie Darko. Yeah, yeah. I love it. But he went a little overboard, especially in some of the audio commentaries where he tries to answer everything. And it does take away some of the magic. Right. I don't want an audio commentary of David Lynch explaining yeah, this yeah. movie. As, as weird and as entertaining as that might be to listen to once, right. then it's sort of over at that point. Well, and I think with Lynch's obsession with the older Hollywood stuff and detective stories, he loves the mystery. And it, it's the same thing, not to use, keep using Twin Peaks, but he always thought the beauty of Twin Peaks was that the mystery keeps going. Yeah. He wants the mystery to keep going. And in this case, the mystery is not in the movie. It is the movie. Right. <laughs> so to conclude, what do we think about the bum? <laughs> what is that? Also, who's the blue-haired woman that says Silencio? I, I have nothing for the blue-haired woman. It's Lil the Dancer or whatever from Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. Perhaps the biggest mystery of all, Billy Ray Cyrus. <laughs> your thoughts? Bizarre. <laughs> What are your teeth? I mean, you had no idea in 2001 or 2004 or later when we watched this to say that this guy, his daughter was going to be like the most wild pop star. (laughs) Okay. So this was a long journey through the mind of David Lynch, Mulholland Drive. I think we explained some stuff, but we left enough up to you, the viewer, to watch the film for yourself. Decide what you think. Yeah, I mean, we know the answers, but we're not going to tell you definitively. We're not going to tell you, no. Forget it. Are Diane and Camilla the same person? Or is it all really Aunt Ruth? (laughs) Is the neighbor an ex-lover? The neighbor. I don't know who that is. The other neighbor woman. How does she fit into it? What about Louise, the great Lee Grant? And How does she seem to know there's trouble? Who? What does she represent? And why did Adam turn down the opportunity to stay at his assistant's house? <laughs> well, in the dream, he's not the type to abuse That's right. that power. He's sort of this sexless nerd. Yeah. Not that you're cool if you do, but you know what I'm saying. Right, like, right. And in reality, the doppelganger version would absolutely his assistant, yes. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Hall of Fame performance from Naomi Watts. Unbelievable. Laura Haring, where are you? I know that she's still in a lot of stuff, but not stuff I'm seeing. Same, yeah. I don't know what she does. She's around. She's in stuff, but not... Okay. I think a lot of TV. I don't know. Gotcha. We could use more of her in our lives. I know that. Justin Throw, briefly married to Jenna Aniston. What happened there? (laughs) Let's have an episode about that. Yes. That's probably as horrifying as Mulholland Drive. You mean, how did it happen, or how did he blow it? I think, how did he blow it? Yeah. (laughs) I get how it happened. She wanted to marry somebody after all that time. (laughs) 
One of these guys has got a stick. We're turning into a tabloid podcast all <laughs> yeah, of a sudden. Really? He also wrote Tropic Thunder. He seems like much more of a comedy guy. Him being in Inland Empire and Mulholland Drive is so weird. It's yeah. like okay, he's just this random David Lynch actor now. <laughs> I don't know. Laura Haring got into a car accident on the way to her audition. Could that have been any more appropriate? Wow, yeah. Got Folks. amnesia. <laughs> what are you here to audition for? I don't know. Some of the stuff I was leaving out on those long quotes from Roger Ebert were, <laughs> it was a different time in 2001. He didn't say anything like too piggish, but let's just say he couldn't get over Laura Haring. <laughs> he just like could not. Just her standing there is the best argument there's been in 55 years for a remake of Gilda. <laughs> she is the new Renee. Wow. These dresses. <laughs> I don't know. He was losing his mind. God rest his soul. All right, <laughs> folks. This is it for Listener Request Summer. As I mentioned in the beginning, we're going to take a little break, but we'll be back sooner rather than later. Kind of a light month in July. More Listener Requests coming the yeah. rest of the year. Take your time with this one. Yeah. Digest it over time. I'm sure a lot of people yeah. are going to be making it this far. <laughs> Once they realized I was reading my full paragraph theories that Even, I wrote down. Even uh, Theodore couldn't <laughs> stick it out. Yeah, we should reveal like some sort of special prize. Like We'll give away something cool or something. We have nothing right cool to give. And no one would ever reach out because yeah. no one's listening. <laughs> Follow the show on Twitter, at Greatest Pod. Subscribe. To the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, etc. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like a free sticker, let us know on Twitter. We'll send that to you for free. Find us on Letterboxd, Zach1983, and Matt Crosby. I will admit that when I go to log Mulholland Drive for the second time, because I already logged it once, but yes. for this podcast... I will be tempted to write some review and then I probably just won't even write anything because I'll be like, you know what? I can't do this. It's just too much. What do you say? Yeah, I know. It's overwhelming. That's how I felt about doing this. Yeah, because then you'll feel like you'll leave something out. It's just tough. People will think I'm dumb. It's like too late. They saw my review of the 1993 Nicole Eggert, Corey Haim, Corey Feldman (laughs) special blown away. They already think I'm dumb. They lost credibility. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll talk to you in a couple weeks. This is the girl. This is the girl. This is the girl. Just por un tiempo, volviendo a sonreír. Luego anoche te vi, tu mano me. Saludo de tu voz Te hablé muy bien Y tú sin saber Que estado llorando Por tu amor Llorando Por tu amor
I die at all. Everything has sucked lately. 